BBC Five Live. I have to admit I feel a little undermined this week. I know. That's exactly how I feel. I, you know, because... Because I thought that that was actually quite funny. The, the chat that we just did on Five Shall we Live. recreate it for anyone who missed it? OK. Yeah, so uh, after, thanks, Jenny. After two o'clock, I'm going to be speaking to Sir Ian McKellen. The author of On Chesil Beach and also Gandalf. No, obviously... Oh. So I'm going to be speaking is, to... I think that's funny. I think, the thing, OK, right. The problem is that you had to have been listening last week to understand the joke. You had to have heard the whole thing about Hannah, who's moved on to better things with Sarah Cox, and her telling me that you'd gone to interview Sir Ian McEwen. Yes. When, in fact, you'd gone to interview Sir Ian McKellen. Actually, Ian McEwen isn't a sir, is he? So that was the, so That's the, the clue. Yeah. That's One the of them, famous Gandalf actor. The other, but it was because of the fact that Chesil Beach and the Sir Ian McKellen presents come out. Now, here's the thing. Has Sir Ian McKellen ever appeared in an adaptation of anything by, Sir, by Ian McEwan? Well, I, off the top of my head. Off the top of your head. Don't, I don't think so, but we have top staff who are on hand right now. Yeah, well, Robin up. in particular, since... Well, he was the one who undermined us with a Did. very... With a very little. Do you he, want to tell the listening public what he said after we'd done that hilarious trail? For Five Live, and he said, well, that was... Okay, mm. moving on. Moving on. Yeah. So, I don't know where where we can go from there now. What I can't move on from, we were robbed. We were absolutely robbed. I know we're never getting on the left-hand side of the board anymore, but we were the only people that got stage invaded, and she was brilliant. She just carried on. Oh, it's Eurovision. She just carried... I know, this seems what like a whole earth? generation ago. She just carried on like nothing had happened. I mean, I, I genuinely thought, I thought, really? I thought, no, I mean, you should see it. You just think, now that is taking being a trooper to the next level. I thought she was terrific. I was absolutely knocked out by how completely unfazed she was. Sue Ree, the British Eurovision entry. Capital S, capital R. Was it fourth, fourth from bottom, was it? Something like that. Third from bottom, I'm reliably informed. It was, I mean, it was, it was just... It was not. I mean, I know it. You know, but it was nonsense. It was absolute nonsense. Well, the whole thing is nonsense. So no, I know, no, I know. Obviously, within the nonsense, but the difference, more nonsense the difference is that, that I. That it's nonsense that I take quite seriously, and it's nonsense that you don't watch. Well, I mean, I have, I have watched it, but actually, last weekend I was on a movie fest. What were you doing? I went to see Tully, and I went to see. A oh, quiet okay, place. which is uh, and a quiet place. Oh, fine. So that's so. So that's so. When you were enjoying the horrors of Eurovision, I was enjoying the horrors of a quiet place. Hmm. Which we can talk about. Did you, later. Like, it? Did you like it quite a place? I absolutely loved, loved it. it. Yeah, so right. we can talk. When we do the box office top 10, we can, uh, we okay. can get into that. Right. Tully appears to have dropped out of the top 10, which is a little bit disappointing. It doesn't matter. We can do it anyway because there's two things in the top 10 that I haven't seen. I haven't seen Life of the Party, which they didn't press screen, and there's another new entry. Which well, let's seen, just so. insert Tully. And yeah, we'll just fix it. There. Just fix it. And, um, no, but seriously, honestly, you should have a, it. Was, it was really. Okay, right. Yeah. So uh, enough of that nonsense. Jonathan Furr. Has been with us. Uh, he signs himself Jonathan for Wittertainment Librarian. Oh, really? Which makes it sound as though he's got an official post. Well, I think we'll be the judge of that, <laughs> Mr. Fur. Uh, short-term listener, first-time email, lives in America, and I'm a librarian. 
One of my primary duties is cataloging and adding newly purchased movies to our collection. Ah. As a devoted member of the Church of Wittertainment... Oh, sorry. In real life, he is a librarian. Yeah, in real life, he Fine. is. Fine. Sorry. As a devoted member of the Church of Wittertainment and as a cataloger of movies, I have recently taken it upon myself to ensure that our library catalogue is Wittertainment approved. I have taken my first step towards this goal when I recently added copies of the new Peter Rabbit DVD that my library purchased. Since Mark so aptly gave the film the alternative title of Annoying Rabbit... Irritating Rabbit. Actually, it was, yeah, it was Irritating Rabbit, but let's not quibble for the moment. No, if he's a librarian, that means it's going to be under I, not A. I've added this alternative title to the film's library catalogue record. <laughs> the alternative title is not visible on the public side of the database. I might actually get into trouble for that. But one can now perform a title search for Annoying Rabbit. And it comes up. Better change it to Irritating, Irritating Rabbit. Rabbit. Uh, and the database will bring up the Peter Rabbit DVD as a result of the search. That's great. Anyway, I'm <clears throat> still working my way through the back catalogue of podcast episodes. I'm not sure if there's a section of the church dedicated to librarians yet. If there hasn't been one, can I suggest the librarian's loge? Loge? Do you have a loge in your house? I don't know what a loge is. It's a private box or enclosure. Is it? Yes, typically found in a theatre. How do you spell it? Uh, L-O-G-E. You mean like the royal box in a theatre? Well, it's, obviously it's the equivalent of that, but it's a librarian's loge. Loge. Okay. Yeah. Did you, do you, you know on the subject of... Um, Correctly filing something, you know, under I for irritating rabbit. Have I told you this? I probably have because I've told you. You everything. almost certainly have. Yes. All right, but you've almost certainly forgotten it because you're getting as bad as I am. Um, where were we? Oh yes, uh, I created a person who doesn't exist who exists on the BFI database. Did I tell you this when I was doing the sight and sound video column, and they they kept they wanted credits for everything, and one of the things that you had to do was to. to to you know, uh, do the credits for for TV straight to straight to video TV productions that didn't have proper credit, so they wouldn't cite the cinematographer, for example. And but they would always say, "Well, who's the cinematographer?" I don't know. I, I watched the end of the. There's nothing there. It's not you know. It's not listed. So I created this character called uh, called Avan Got a Clue. Thank you. Um, you say thank you. You can't just say thank you in the middle of a conversation. I just got given some notes. Um, so I created this person, Avan A V E N Got a Clue. G-O-T-A-C-L-U. I think it may have had an, an umlaut or something over the U. And for age, if I couldn't find if I couldn't find anyone, this yeah, Avan got a clue, had the most brilliant CV. He did a bit of sound over here, he did a bit of cinematography over there, he might have been an editor on that production. He might have been a she. He would Most of your life is a fantasy, really. All my life's a circle. Um if you're looking for cool names to have, how about Tim Bongers? Do you like that one? I just took him. Just took him. Tim Bonkers. Let's try it again. It wasn't that. It was the fact that I literally just took a mouthful of this this refreshing fizzy drink at the point that you that you decided to mention Tim Bonkers. Well, anyway, Tim says, uh, listening to your May the Fourth show, a full eleven days late, for which I apologise. I'm a member of Clergy Corner. Says the Reverend Tim Bonkers. Reverend Bonkers. Even better but possibly the only resident evangelist, although many people clearly spread the word about your show. I was writing a study on John chapter 10. I was in the process of typing the phrase false... John chapter 10? Is that a, that's like John Wicks 2? I think it's the gospel of I John. I know, I know, I know. Chapter 10. Yeah, I've got it. I was in the process... I, ha- you, I, do, I, I, I am aware of what that is, Simon. I was in the process of typing the phrase false messiah... When at that precise <laughs> moment, 
Dr. Mayo used the same term in reference to Rory Kethlin Jones. Yeah. Describing him as a false messiah of the cinema in comparison to Mark's status as genuine expert. I can't help thinking that this was a wholly unlikely event. Had I been typing other words from the Bible, like delight or weeping or ab- <laughs> abomination, I might well have... You've got, a very, you've got your funny voice on today. Coincided with Mark using the same terminology in a review, but false messiah... Abomination. ...was a far more improbable case of playground jinx. Tinkety-tonk, down with all the false messiahs, says Reverend Bongers. If you don't know how to spell Rory Kathleen Jones and you Google it, you get to his Wikipedia page via Rory Keth- Kathleen Jones. <laughs> anyway, Rory's going to tweet about this because he loves it Does so he? much. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hello, Rory. False messiah. BBC tech correspondent, in case. He's just he's a very entertaining guy, even though he knows nothing about films. Back off, Rory. <laughs> yes, what was it? Which was it? Was uh, it was Churchill was the thing that created the spat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, come yeah. on, you're come on your own there, Rory. Come over here, watch our film. Do we tell you about technology? I think we don't. Well, that's because neither you or I know how to work technology. Yeah, well, he doesn't know about movies, does he? Just because you've seen a film, Rory, doesn't mean that you actually can talk about it. You know, he's not actually here. Oh yeah, yeah. I like to. I no, but, but I like that. That's the thing that you do because you're you you talk as if you're speaking to one person. In this particular case, one particular person. I'm delighted to say, by the way, that this week. On the Wittertainment podcast, we have a joyful moment. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's nothing to do with the wedding. Which oh, I see you're particularly smart for the royal wedding. I, I know looking, I've dressed up specially. Looking forward. Who's to marrying who? No, no, no one's marrying. It's the, it's the return of our occasional feature. Information Super Highway. Buffering. Dream of See, that's a lot shorter than the original, but I still funny. I, it's still funny, but I quite like that. I quite like the longer version. Have you got the longer version? They've deleted. I it. bet they have. They've, They're uh, just saying. Yeah. It's just saying. No, we haven't because right. he have doesn't you, want to play it. Have you actually got the longer version? Anyway. No, he didn't come. Yeah, but that's what he does. Anyway, it's cream of the streams where Mark reviews a. Can film you play that again? That's released on streaming services only and not just in the cinema. It's Cream of the Streams, and this time it's... We're doing it again. Do the jingle again. No? I don't know. You going to do the jingle again? I've gone. It was worth it. Information Super Highway. Ouch. Buffering. Cream of the Streams. That's our jingle. Who is it doing the singing? It's all, it's probably so Rory Kathleen Jones. Rory Kathleen Jones doing again. It, so. Okay, fine. <laughs> anyway, uh, what are we doing for Cream of the Streams? Okay, so uh, Cargo, which is out on Netflix, which is actually a really interesting uh, zombie movie starring Martin Freeman. So the story at the beginning of the film, it's a it's it's an Australian film. At the beginning of the film, we have a father and a mother and their child on a houseboat on a river. And the film does this brilliant thing about not giving a whole bunch of backstory. You can see immediately that something terrible has happened to society. And uh, we find out pretty quickly that what's happened is that civilization has been ravaged by this kind of plague, which is not again. A zombie. Once again, the, the zombie plague. Uh, and uh, they're on the houseboat because the houseboat is the place where they have taken refuge because they're away from the land. They're kind of safe in the water, but they're running out of supplies. Here's a clip. There's a town here. Can't be more than 30 or 40 k's from where we are, right? It's rural. There's not a lot of people. I say we get a car. We fill it with supplies. We just see what's out there. 
believe we've seen what's out there. No, we've seen what's back there. That was weeks ago. It's quiet on the banks. We've talked about this. No. What if we've outrun it? And what if we haven't? Where we need to be, actually, is here. The river has got us this far. If we play it smart, it's going to get us all the way there. But we just have to stick to what we know. What we know? Andy, you had barely set foot on a boat before we found this thing. I mean, it's older than both of us put together. What if the engine goes? What happens then? We have to think about Rosie. We can't set foot on the shore until it's our last and only option. That's just the way it is. I'm sorry. So is that going to be before or after our daughter starves to death? So it's very bleak, sad. You hear from that, it's got a kind of very sort of naturalistic tone to it. And then during the course of the movie, what happens is that they have to deal with the ravaging infection and there is a certain place that they have to get to whilst it actually is about a family attempting to take care of itself and attempting to take care of its children whilst something terrible is going on in the background. And the interesting thing about it is this. Um, we have seen umpteen zombie movies and it's always, you know, it's a matter of can you find something different recently there was that film Cured, which was sort of a zombie film about what happens after you've managed to cure the plague and whether or not people can then be accepted back into society. And I think it got very, very little attention in cinemas. Um, I think it you know, played a few places, but then it came out on DVD on the Monday. This is a kind of the perfect example of the, exactly the kind of film that streaming can really benefit because I think this movie probably would have got lost in cinemas, but watching it uh, on home viewing, I thought it was actually very powerful. It's adapted from a short, a viral short from 2013, which got an awful lot of attention, which was uh, made by Ben Yelling and Yolanda Ramke, who made the feature. And in the short film, which is only seven minutes long, it's a very, very simple idea. It's a man in his car. He wakes up in his car. His wife is, is, is a zombie. He grabs the child out of the back of the car and he realises that he's been bitten and he then has to figure out how he's going to save the child whilst he's dealing with the fact that he is going to fall prey to whatever this virus is and it's a seven minute thing and it's a very simple idea and it's actually really well executed really hauntingly done the feature sort of expands that central premise to include treatment about the to include the stuff about the mistreatment of the indigenous people there's a young aboriginal girl who is caring for her infected father there is a white character who is using the indigenous people as bait in order to draw the zombies as if in a kind of you know meat trap and all these things come together in a film which draws inspiration from on the one hand walk about on the other hand something as bizarre and unexpected as the valley obscured by clouds and i thought it was it's it's odd it's quite grueling it's very it's got a very very dark undercurrent martin freeman i thought was terrific it's not big on special effects it's really to do with you know character drama it's a way of you know using the zombie idea as a as a character drama about families and families falling apart and you know the the uh, responsibilities of parenthood and it's quite it's melancholic and, and sad but i thought very well done and as i said it's the kind of thing that would have got lost in cinemas but i i i really enjoyed it uh uh on home viewing i watched it yesterday and i didn't know anything about it at all i i knew about the short feature which i only watched afterwards and uh and it's interesting once you see the short feature you think okay fine i understand much more how the how the feature came together, but I thought it was it's definitely worth a watch. It's called Cargo. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I'm gonna write I'm gonna write a zombie story, I think, and where the zombies can be cured by taking Calpol. What do you think? I think it's a great idea. Have you seen Cockneys vs. Zombies? No. Cockneys vs. Zombies has got one of my favourite zombie sequences in it, which is a low speed chase between a zombie and a bloke on a Zimmer frame. 
I should look that out. It's really, really well done. You've been listening to... World Wide Web. Megabits and Megabytes. Information Superhighway. Buffering. Ouch. Cream oh. of the streams. You see, to me, that's still what the internet sounds like. That was too long. Somebody sent me a, 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 a thing which said, oh, you know, we just went full cur mode because I said in a blog, you know, it's like every day you turn on the internet. Apparently, it was a stupid thing to say. Well, it was because the internet is on all the time. there, isn't it? Yeah. There was, who was it? Jason was telling me a brilliant story about, because Jason was an early adopter of, you know, internet-y stuff. He was working on a film with an actor who shall remain unnamed, and he was trying to explain to the actor what the internet was. And he said, for example, look, if I look you up, and as it happened, this actor had done a, um, a, a nude scene in the film, and suddenly there was this picture of this nude scene. And the actor was appalled that it was out there. He said, "Take, d- delete that from your computer. And Jason was saying, it's not on my computer, it's on the internet. And he was like, no, but I can see it. Take it off, d- delete it immediately from your computer. And Jason had to explain to him that it wasn't within his power to do that. Unfortunately, it was out there in the world. And with that showbiz anecdote, that's the end of part one. On with the rest of the show now. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to the programme. We're talking movies between now and four o'clock, all decked out in our royal regalia. Uh, in honour of the big day coming up tomorrow. Mark is You're looking... You're still dressed exactly as usual. Oh, yeah, and so are you. Sorry, just for a moment, I <laughs> thought you were draped in a union flag. But actually, you're dressed like an undertaker. Like me. <laughs> and, if you, and if you're watching on the webcam, uh, the live stream, obviously via the Five Live website, Mark's the one in the suit and I'm the one... You're the one dressed as a child. I'm the one dressed as a child. What does your T-shirt say this week, Simon? It doesn't say anything. It's got no writing for... No writing, no branding, no branding, no label... Ooh, you're so edgy. Thank you. Well, I like to I like to uphold the BBC standards. Uh, later on, we're going to hear from Sarie McKellen. Uh, there is an, a very interesting biopic, and uh, not a biopic, called no, uh, Biopic. McKellen playing the part. Mark's going to review some films. Oh, you want me to say that's, what? That's the bit. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Sorry. Say what? Uh, on Chesil Beach, uh, Saoirse Ronan, Saoirse Ronan. Well, she she says Sersha is fine, but I think Sersha is Sersha. Sersha is uh, okay. So we'll be bringing on, on Chesil Beach, uh, Deadpool two, Jeune Femme, uh, Film Worker, which is a documentary um, about a guy who worked with Stanley Kubrick for many many years. It's very fascinating reissue of two thousand and one as well, which is fifty years old. Lots of people have been to see uh, Deadpool two. Uh, your reviews mail at bbc.co.uk. Zachary Jane's BSc PhD in Edinburgh. In the last couple of shows, uh, your two bad cells have demonstrated some understandable uncertainty regarding which small, many-legged creatures are insects and which are not. Yeah. And precisely how counting legs works. Following is a hopefully clarifying guide. For simplicity, I have omitted... I'm already lost, but go on. Okay. Here's a rough guide. Six legs, insect. Okay. Eight legs... Spider. Arachnids. Arachnids. More than eight... Wait. Millipede. And centipedes. Myriapods and crustaceans. Myriapods and crustaceans. Yeah. Collectively, these are usually known as arthropods. Thank you for the countless hours of excellent work. Tinkety Tonk and up with greater knowledge of taxonomy. Thank you, Zachary. Countless, as in you can't count them because there really aren't that many. Catherine and Calvin say, I felt inclined to write after a truly terrifying visit to our local cinema. Let's just say it's in London. (laughs) Following Mark's rave review of A Quiet Place, we couldn't resist our next 
visit to the cinema for our two favourite things, horror and a moment of silence. Actually, I, dis- I know it is categorised as horror in when you look at the cinema's uh, different websites. Yeah, you're about to say Quiet Place is not a horror film. I don't think it's a horror film. I, well, it, it's, it, it is very funny how whenever anything's any good... No, 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 not, no, not at all. It just felt more like a, like a zombie film than... Well, a zombie uh, film is a horror film. Well, that's a particular type, isn't it? I think I know what I'm talking about here. It, but I have studied this over many years. What have you studied over many years? Nothing. Okay, but as somebody who has a PhD in horror fiction, it's a horror film. Hmm. Hmm. But is it though? Is it? Suffi- is it though? Is Su- it? Suffice to say, <laughs> our trip started badly. The floors and <laughs> seats like the program. were scattered with the debris of the previous cinema goers' crummy food habits, including hot dogs and nachos. As we walked further towards the back, heading for our favourite seats, instead of the way too frequent dire seat politics and other homo sapiens, we were faced with sharing our spot with two mice. Really? Naturally, I went to speak to the staff, politely informing them of the fact that the screen hadn't been cleaned and the unwanted guests' unwillingness to pay for their tickets. The response mimicked my own, mice, really? We were assured the screen would be cleaned as soon as possible, but guess what? It wasn't. wasn't. As the adverts began, we watched a mouse run from the parallel seat to the aisle to pinch the viewer's food remnants. Due to the rodent situation, we were on the verge of leaving, but my partner whispered, let's just, let's just see it through. By which time I thought he was either extremely heroic or completely insane. <laughs> so now we were feeling a mix of excitement, anticipation and pure fear. The film began and we were instantly hooked... Uh, almost forgetting about our furry friends altogether. As you will have seen from the trailer, there is a scene... That, uh, we can do this because it is in, the, in trailer. the trailer. Okay. There is a scene where one of the sons decides to play with a toy rocket. At the exact point that John Krasinski turns to run, my partner jumps out of his seat with an admir- admirable silent shriek. I thought, come on, we've seen this in the trailer. You knew it was coming. After his over-the-top reaction, he turned to me and mouthed, Mouth, mouse, mouse. <laughs> with a two-finger walking sign, aggressively pointing at his foot. The mouse was now speedily strutting up and down the aisles of the theatre whilst the film was rolling, and if this doesn't break the code of conduct, I'm in the wrong club. On our way out, we, on our way out, we reiterated the state of affairs to a member of staff, as well as to Rent-A-Kill. We're going to be visiting our local cinema with two free tickets, but that really, you know, you don't want to have mice, and it would be very distracting. I'll tell you two mouse-related cinema stories. Well, I'd rather you... You'd rather I did one, but I'm going to do both, so there we go, tough. Um, Are they super brief? Because there's so much to do. Be very quick. In the 1970s, I was given a copy of the Guinness Book of Records, as every child was. Um, I immediately looked in the index to see The Exorcist, um, and the story about The Exorcist was not to do with it being the biggest box office movie of all time, but it was in the Guinness Book of Records as least successful movie screening of all time, which was obviously a humorous uh, entry uh, a screening of it in Germany in which a mouse had got into the projection booth and apparently uh, you, you know being chased around by a woman with a mop to the hilarity of the crowd anecdote one anecdote number wow, two was, was, the Scala Cinema in uh, King's Cross which is where they used to do the horror all-nighters used to have no mouse problem because they had the Scala Cat and the Scala Cat would just get anything that was moving. And if you were there in the middle of a horror all-nighter at about four o'clock in the morning, just as something creepy was happening, the Scarlet Cat would jump on your head. I was in a windmill once in old Amsterdam (laughs) and there was a mouse. Going clippity-clop. There was, right there on the stair. Right there? Yeah. Where? There was a little mouse with clogs on. Where was it? Well, I declare. It was going clippity-clop on on the stairs. You know, there's a whole generation of people that don't understand what that joke. On earth <laughs> what on earth are they talking about? Uh, Box Office Top 10 coming up in just a second. Just to, just on the subject of stuff that comes 
either in the trailer or early. Mm-hmm. Holly Potter Adams, The Hague, right, Netherlands. I am a medium term. I think that was her nickname. Holly Potter Adams or The Hague. Like no, she's not known as Dwayne Johnson or The Rock. Holly you know? The Hague. Holly The Hague. That does sound Adams, quite good. Yeah. So, um, I, yes, I take to recruiting new members to the church nearly as seriously as, I take it as seriously as Jason. This extends to finding any opportunity to use your show in my lessons as an English teacher. Uh, despite my love of the show, I am emailing with something I found problematic during my weekly listening over the past few days. On more than one occasion, both the good doctors have said a version of the following statement. Okay. It's not a spoiler because it happens in the first 10 minutes. Right. Surely any revelation of plot detail is a spoiler, regardless of where in the film it takes place. The first 10 minutes may well reveal something crucial or unexpected about the characters or setting. Please can you explain why you believe the first 10 minutes to be spo- a spoiler-free zone? Okay. If you're going to talk about movies at all, you pretty much have to talk about the setup of the film. And in my opinion, anything that happens in the first ten in the first act is a setup. It is true that there are certain occasions in which something happens in the first act of a movie that is better not known about. And actually, a quiet place would fit. A in. quiet place actually does fit into that. But th- those are rare cases. The thing is that when you're reviewing films or talking about films, you are automatically spoiling them because you're talking about what they're about. Um, and the only way you can do it with any kind of balance is to sort of work within the contract of, OK, we believe this material is in the public domain already. You know that this is what it's a war film. It's a film in which a war breaks out. It's a film about bereavement. It's a film in which a zombie plague has happened. But it's absolutely the case that you can't talk about a film at all without doing any spoilers because as soon as you start as soon as you say it's a war I mean uh, the perfect example is Audition the Mika Takashi movie I didn't know Audition was a horror film when I saw it and the first 20 minutes of it played very differently because I didn't know it was a horror film uh, th- and that was raised by Holly the Hague so thanks very much Holly uh, thank you about an interesting point uh, quarter past two box office top 10 at 13 Tully I've just mentioned it because I went to see it and I loved it. And it's fallen out of the tent, so we're just mentioning it. And the, the, the thing you liked, and I, this is interesting, is that you, you did think that the... This isn't... This is plot spoiler. The, the, the narrative moves in a, in a way that I thought worked, I thought made perfect sense, but there is a third act thing that happens that yes. some people have said, I don't buy that, what's the point of all that? But I thought it actually was integral to the, to the movie itself. I, th- I thought it was delightful and uh, surprising and uh, I just went for the ride... Uh, and I thought there was something going on, but uh, the thing that okay. was going on, I didn't know about. And, oh, right, fine. So you and, thought- Char- and Charlize Theron playing uh, a mother of three is brilliant. Was she actually looked like a mother of three? Completely yeah. believable. She put on fifty pounds to do the movie, and but it's the exhaustion. It's yes. the, it's it's the look of utter. It's when I think the mo- one of the most brilliant scenes in it is that she's asleep. I remember reading an interview with uh, the director of Ironweed talking about Meryl Streep method acting being dead, okay? And he said she lay on the floor. Well, anyone can lay on the floor. But she lay on the floor so well that her body temperature went down. It's like she literally went into... There is a scene in uh, Tully in which um, Charlize Theron isn't so much asleep as unconscious. And to be able to, to portray that when you're basically... You're lying there not doing anything. It's but she looks unconscious as opposed to asleep anyway if so if you haven't seen it you get a chance i think it's it's terrific and uh, one of my favorites of the year anyway uh in tebby is it 11 i i think that the the decision to to use the, the the medium of modern dance was an interesting one i don't think it entirely works i certainly think towards the end of the film 
I think, okay, can you stop that now? Because I now want to know about the raid on Entebbe, which I know that I've seen in you know in cinemas several times before. I, it's it is it is very clunky and creaky, and it doesn't entirely work. That's it's not without certain pleasures. I do think that there there is a joy to be had in watching Eddie Marsan do Simon Perez. I think that is you know I think he gives it. Welly, but I think it is a very flawed film. Michael says, in general, Entebbe was dull and wasted its compelling source material. There were too many earnest speeches made in this film and they all went nowhere. At times it felt like I was watching a rather confusing lecture. Entebbe had one saving grace for me, the dancing scenes. Uh-huh. The introduction of modern dance into a terrorist hijack drama was such a bizarre idea yes. that it immediately got my attention. Yeah. I'd suggest that Entebbe is almost worth watching until the end, to witness one of the strangest end credit sequences I've ever seen. <laughs> I wanted to leave immediately after this disappointing film ended, but I couldn't because the end credits had me transfixed. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame that the rest of the film failed to capture my interest. You see, that kind of hits the nail on the head. Although, the, although I think the modern dance doesn't work, if you took it away, you would take out the heart of the film. And, again, I have said this before, I would rather see somebody try something and fail than not try uh, so at number 10, that's in Tevye Dillon, uh, is Razi. So this wasn't press screened. This is a thriller set uh, during the Indo-Pakistan War of 1971 about an Indian spy married to a Pakistani man. Do we have any reviews? Yes, Dhruv Krishna Goyal. A satisfying mix of Bollywood melodrama and gripping espionage that utilises the potential of both these genres to pay due respect to the unrecognised martyrs of war but also question the acceptance of this genuine patriotism towards one country that sometimes reduces people uh, from other countries to mere pawns. Uh, Meghna Gulza's film recognises the necessity of this form of nationalism in the wake of war. It also explores the harsh consequences it brings along with it. Razi is at number 10. Uh, Rampage is at nine. Still holding up, still fun. Didn't like as much as Robbie, but think The Rock can do no wrong. Blade Runner, The Final Cut, Secret Cinema is at eight. The Secret Cinema screenings are absolutely, you know, run runaway successes. Blade Runner, The Final Cut is the definitive version of the film. The Guernsey Pie film is at seven. Go on, what's it called, Simon? Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. Well done. Certificate 12A. Um, I imagine it's doing much of its business in afternoon screenings. Uh, you you get exactly what you see on the poster. Uh, a Quiet Place is at number six. Well, as discussed. I'm really glad you liked it. I'm I really... absolutely loved it. And it, I, the more I've thought about it, the more I've loved it afterwards. Well, I th- the thing I found about thinking about it afterwards was the more you think about it, the more it doesn't make sense. Oh, here's, no, listen, here's the thing. Here's go on. The, okay, go on. This is... And, Witness, this is a perfect example yeah. of uh, what Holly the Hague was querying, because okay. I'm now going to talk about something in the opening minute. Okay. Okay? Yeah. So the setup of the film, just give us the setup of the film. Okay, so the setup of the film is that the world has been ravaged by some form of initially unseen beasts that basically prey through sound. They see through their ears. Okay. So you have to be silent to be safe. So in the opening scene, we are introduced to, to the family that we spend the, spend the movie with. Yeah. And they're in the supermarket. It's a classic kind of zombie supermarket. Yeah. They're hiding, they're sheltering, they're cowering. And the supermarket has been stripped. Yeah. Of everything, yeah. apart from one stand. You, they don't make a thing about it. it uh, just... and, I, and I didn't notice it. And when you told me on the phone, I thought, that's a brilliant thing. What was it? It just pans past, but the aisle that is untouched is the one that's selling crisps. 
genius because absolutely they're genius. noisy yeah. as you eat crisps you get eaten or attacked or whatever it is yeah. so i think when considering a snack to take into the cinema think about a quiet place would you survive would you survive <laughs> in a quiet place eating this snack that's very good that's very good and actually when you, when you said it cuz we, we we were on the you know we were talking about it on the phone after you'd seen it and I was kicking myself that I hadn't, I hadn't noticed that at all. Beautiful. I must go back and watch it. In respect to any film that sort of under, you know, is there for less time yeah. than you expect and begins on, was it day 89? Yeah. It doesn't explain it, just yeah, gets yeah. on with it. Uh, very good. So Quiet Place is at six. Breaking In is at five. I rather enjoyed Breaking In. I mean, it's a B-movie and it's very nuts and bolts. Uh, and, it, you know, its director has done perhaps more adventurous work elsewhere. But I like the fact that it inverts the standard home invasion tropes that what you have is a mother locked out of the house which has gone into this kind of lockdown and her kids are on the inside of the house i also like the fact that it has billy burke who was my favorite character from twilight now playing something very much against type i think gabriel union is terrific as the central character who who demonstrates that mums don't run Um, as i said it is definitely a b picture but it's it's a perfectly enjoyable b picture with with an interesting twist on very very familiar ideas. Can I say one other thing about a quiet place? Yeah, is that go and see it with a, a really good sound system if you can, because it becomes obviously it's a movie about sound and mm. not making sound. So yeah. when we do hear sounds, the sounds are the scary things. Where, where did you see it? I saw it at the uh, down the local. You're not allowed to say what. If you, if, if you had a good experience, there, I think you're allowed to say what it is. Yeah, it was uh, it was the local Odeon. Okay. Where I've had less than pleasant experiences. Oh, it was that one. It was the one where the oh Mexican, wow, okay, Mexican fine, food. okay, okay. But no one ate Mexican food, so it was uh, it was quite enjoyable. In fact, it was impeccable. Even though there were people with trays of popcorn, uh, it was in, as soon as it started, that was it. No one made. Yeah, it see, out. that was exactly my experience. Was that it absolutely made the audience go quiet? It's that thing that you said about school teacher. When they go loud, you go quiet. Very good. Life of the Parties at number four. Didn't see it. Wasn't press screened. Why wasn't it press screened? That's. I imagine good. it's a hit, and they wanted the the fans to enjoy it first. That's very charitable of you. Dave, on an email, as the film started and really struggled to get going, I thought we were going down a painful road of unfunny, <coughs> excuse me, unfunny comedy squeezed into the age-old trope of older person goes to do something that younger people do, as seen in many of its predecessors. It does, however, pick up. There are some genuine laugh-out-loud moments that had me really belting out some belly laughs. The unfortunate thing is that there are two or three really funny scenes uh, in a comedy film, most of the attempts at comedy between these good points are painful. I actually found any scene with Bridesmaids co-star Maya Rudolph in them to be a lot funnier than anything else in the film. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's not terrible, but absolutely miles off being the funniest film of the year. But I don't mean, why wouldn't they show it to you? Don't, know. don't they care? Uh, no, I'm sure that it's, it's, you know, done great on its own. Thank you. Uh, I Feel Pretty, hanging on in there at number three. You know, I felt very, very mixed about uh, I Feel Pretty. I wanted to like it more than I did. I liked the idea. I found that it didn't have the empowering message that it was designed to have. But I was very struck because we had an email um, last week from somebody for whom it had absolutely hit the nail on the head. And, you know, so it is working for a certain section of the audience. I, I, I found it disappointing, but others have not. I just noticed how mucky this studio is today. Is it? It's like you're n- not paying attention to anything I said. Oh, you asked me about a film, and I talked to you. Then you went straight back to talking about a quiet place. Then you asked me about another film, and I tell you, and you tell me the studio's mucky. Well, look, there's there's three cups of water, a mug of water, a jug of water, some mascara, some lip balm. This is riveting some radio. Cough sweets. People need to clear up after them. But don't leave your litter here on this windowsill. Anyway, I was Simon listening. Mayo. 
don't leave your litter here on this windowsill. Simon Mayo. What are you talking about? I've got no idea. No, I don't just, know either. So I'm just speaking words. So I feel pretty is at number three. And this is from uh, Richard Clark. I'm not really the target audience. Not that I believe in such things, but being a single, northern, pale, gingery bloke approaching 50, I doubt the makers had me in mind. I really liked it. <laughs> I could see its faults, but its strengths were so much greater. I totally related to the points it made, uh, such as the fruitless time spent at the gym or playing Tinder Snap. Uh, the romantic relationship was very well done, and I properly welled up at the end. Perhaps the end wasn't the one I wanted, but I loved it nevertheless. Okay. Thank you, Richard Clark. Yeah. Um, so I feel pretty is at number three. Sherlock Gnomes is at number two. It's like Sherlock Holmes, but with gnomes and Gnomeo and Juliet and Elton John. I don't have any idea why it's there. Andy Elms, my seven-year-old son's best friend, had a birthday trip to the cinema to okay. see Sherlock Gnomes. So I tagged along as assistant cat herder. I went in anticipating some sleep and possibly... Uh, a Basil Rathbone reference or two. It exceeded my low expectations, and by the end I was quite charmed okay. by Emily Blunt and James McAvoy's characters. Johnny Depp's Sherlock Captain Mordecai Holmes wasn't as irritating as he could have been. Mm. In his review, Mark asked why this film existed. Yeah. But the greatest hit soundtrack revealed it was a way for producer Elton John to market his back catalogue to pre-tweens. The largely generic chase through London wasn't entirely predictable and the climax contained a rather beautiful reference to the Reichenbach Falls, which I guess is a spoiler, but I don't think anyone's going to complain. It is true, if I had to say something positive... I did think that the London scenery, the animated London scenery in the in the third act, was well rendered. But, Excellent. But that's going on the post, isn't it? The, the London scenery in the third act was well rendered, and Johnny Depp wasn't as annoying as he could have been. Emily Sherwin, it was bad, so bad. The best bit about the entire film is the dancing on the bridge and the glittery Elton John gnome. Thank heavens for The Incredibles 2 later in the summer to save animated film. We hope. Louise Hollihan, my five-year-old, Brody, and I saw it in an almost empty cinema on one of the hottest days of the year so far. Best, possibly only laugh, was when the screen card came up and Brody exclaimed, Sherlock Gnomes, yes! Anyway, he loved it. And it was, <laughs> as it was utterly devoid of funny bits, I think he viewed it as a detective story or, <laughs> or crime drama. Excellent. Anyway, Sherlock Gnomes doing perfectly fine, thank Good. you very much, yes. uh, at number two. Number one, Avengers Infinity War. My feeling remains unchanged that it absolutely depends on how much you... The more you have invested in the Avengers, the more you will enjoy it. And that's a po positive thing because, you know, as we know from what happened with some Star Wars fans in the most recent Star Wars movie, sometimes investment can go completely the other way. And you go, well, why isn't that the movie that I want it to be? In this case... It's the, fa it's the movie that the Avengers fans want it to be. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just not in that world. Speaking of uh, Star Wars, should mention that Ron Howard is going to be on next week's show. Yes. Uh, as the director of ha the Han Solo Solo. The Han Solo, the Han Solo, Solo, Solo film. Yes, a Star Wars. Solo. Called Solo. Solo. That's Han the one. A Han Solo Solo. Anyway. Does he do a solo in it at any point? Solo, a Star Wars story is what it's called. And, of course, he was brought on halfway through, so there's lots to talk about. And, um, and is there any moment when he says, would that it were so simple? No, though obviously that's we are Obviously, gonna, that's a shame. We are going to be talking about the top man uh, there. Now, I need to apologise because um, I realised this after you had corrected me. What? Anyway, VJ Chopper in Southampton. This, the, the, the email is headlined, Simon's made me angry. Okay. Uh, this is about staying through the whether you whether it's worth staying through the end credits of 
of the Infinity War. Yes. And I was sort of I wasn't quite sure that it was. Yes. Okay, and you then and explained said, that it absolutely was. Yes. Anyway, so I'm writing this having just heard Simon telling people to skip the end credit sequence only because I thought it was inc- obviously you have to wait a long, long time. There are a lot I was quite of visual tired, effects credits. And I was a bit underwhelmed. However, that is because I don't know what I'm talking about. So uh, Vijay says, please don't skip the end credit sequence. Infinity War is the first film I've watched where an entirely full screen one multiplex cinema audience sat through the entire credits right to the end in absolute silence on a random Thursday evening. It's an amazing experience that I'll probably never get again. Don't be the person to ruin that for someone else. Mind you, I think leaving the cinema during the credits is sort of acceptable, isn't it? Uh, anyway, secondly, for anyone invested in this MCU and certainly in the comics, there is a huge moment in there, enough of enough of one to make me punch the air and stifle a shouted yes after the scene. Yeah. This is the scene that appears yeah, yeah, yeah. after the credits. Yeah. Well, in the screening that I was in, nobody stifled it. In the screening that I was in, <coughs> about half the audience went, yes, like that. Okay, so that's exactly what Vijay is saying. Yeah, so exactly. No, but he said that punch, punch it with a stifle scream. They didn't stifle it. They, you know, they, they'd waited this long and it was, a, it was a huge roar that went up. It's quite acceptable to shout during the credit sequence. Yeah, that thing about leaving during the credits, though, it is, it is difficult. Again, it obviously it often depends on the size of the cinema. There's, but it's five, six, seven minutes. No, I, I agree. But it's just, you know, if you look down the, the, the line of people, just, you know, just, just ask yourself, should I, if somebody's obviously waiting to see the end credits, should I? Can I just wait another three minutes and you know not bother them, or shall I bother them because I need? You're not to... bothering them if you want to leave. Well, just it, move your legs. Not being bothered. D- it depends on the leg room and the screening situation. There, I, I can think of two screening rooms in which somebody getting out during the credits is actually really, really problematic. But no one sees films in screening rooms, Mark. Everyone sees them in cinemas. I know cinemas in which you might as well be in a screening room. Anyway, also on the film, Christine Mole, uh, I can take or leave Marvel films. Civil War, far too long and convoluted. Iron Man, just increasingly a vehicle for Robert Downey Jr.'s ego. But having given Infinity War a go this lunchtime, rather than accompany my wife and daughter on a patient snapping shopping trip, I have to say it was up there with the best of the genre. Rattling good pace, regularly genuinely funny one-liners, uh, and then Christine says something about the ending, and I'm not even going <laughs> to say that because I'm so sensitive yeah. and aware of the listeners' needs. No, I, I agree. It's, it, 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 to anybody who thinks that critics just blithely give away plot points. I mean, it, I, I'm sure we do, but we do try not to. It, It is... Can I, can I just say, I just said Christine Mole. It's Christian Mole. So, Christian Mole. So Christian, I apologise for that. Anyway, and it, it concludes, I think Mark needs to lighten up. Anyway. Well, that ain't going to happen. That ain't going to happen. But I'll tell you what is going to happen, Mark. What and is that is, uh, one of our great knights is going to be with us the other side of the news and sport. That is Ian McKellen. Yeah. So, look, uh, we've got some uh, some reviews coming up and uh, lots of your correspondence. Thank you very much for that. And we have uh, a chat with Sir Ian McKellen coming up in just a moment. Now, for this uh, interview, I went to his house. So you're going to – so it's like we're going – pour, he poured us coffee, uh, got us some biscuits. He was the perfect host. Yeah. Uh, and this film is called McKellen playing the part. Yes, and it's sort as he as he'll explain. It's a sort of my life in the theatre uh, and the cinema. It's yeah. that it's that kind of approach. Yeah. Uh, and he was a, he was a wonderful host. Fantastic to spend so much uh, time with him. So in the clip from the movie that we're going to hear, the clip is uh, Ian McKellen speaking. 
So, and then that'll be yeah, followed. That's how clips usually work. Yeah, but then that's going to be followed by more Ian McKellen speaking. speaking. It's just that he would be responding to my incredibly incisive. So, what you're saying questions. is it's quite hard to tell where the clip ends and the interview begins. Well, shall we see? Yeah, well, I'm, yes, okay. I'm on board. So we'll, so, we'll talk to Sir Ian in just a moment. First of all, clip from the film. As part of uh, what's now looked back on as a golden era at the RSC, a lifelong friendship with Judy Dench resulted for me. I loved working with her. She's not an easy actress to work with in one sense, in that the audience are all in love with her. You feel rather cut out of it when you're on stage with her. Now, Judy can always be relied on to give you a good time, and she's, uh, I think, would much rather be playing games, silly games. If she decides we're going to do something, then we all do it. And that's a clip from Ian McKellen playing the part. Delighted to say we've been joined by Sir Ian McKellen. Good afternoon to you, sir. Hello, how are you? Nice to see you. Uh, so uh, the, la- the last time we spoke was for Mr. Holmes, and which, which I think is fascinating because this is a film which is sort of you reflecting on uh, on your life, and uh, and in Mr. Holmes is sort of like an interesting primer for that because that's a lot of reflections about a life well spent. Mm. You don't realise until you get old that um, increasingly uh, a lot of your life is is spent. Um, thinking about being old and in fact being old you know aches and pains and so on and avoiding them and uh, treating them and talking to your similarly aged friends about them so to to come across a a film script which um, in which you're playing a 90 year old man which was true of mr holmes or this film which is about a a man in his late 70s (laughs) me the fact of age is is, is uh, a preoccupation that, that you can't avoid, and, nor do you want to really, because I suppose if you were wise and, and used your time well, you, you might be contemplating the meaning of life or, or your own life and, and what to do with the time that's left. But, of course, you don't know how long that's going to be, so I think probably the best uh, policy is just to take it day by day and, and to make plans for the future on the assumption you're going to be around and you're going to be able to be around. In that interview for Mr Holmes I, I mentioned the fact that there was talk that you might write an autobiography which has since as I understand it fallen through and you returned the advance and so on but I wonder why you didn't want to write an autobiography but you are happy to be in this autobiographical film. It's a sort of substitute I think. I'm the two problems I had with writing my autobiography was that, A, I couldn't remember. <laughs> well, there's plenty of that I can remember about my childhood, which is of immense interest to me. But there's nobody left I can check on the facts. And indeed, often your memory plays you false. And you, you would like, wouldn't you, in an autobiography to <laughs> get the facts right? But if you haven't kept a diary, and if there's nobody around to... Uh, remember with you, then you're at a real disadvantage. It's it, it's a hard, it's hard work. You're being a historian about a subject you you think you know well, but it's not always easy to get to know it better. That that's one big problem I found because I did start sort of plan it out, and the other more difficult really for me was wondering who would be reading it, and I suppose a variety of people. And if I said uh, the RSC, oh well, that won't do. I'll have to put. Royal Shakespeare Company, well, that won't do. I mean, why is it royal, and who is Shakespeare, and where did he live, and when was he, and what did he do, and and what's my connection with him? I have to start explaining to people who've perhaps come to the book because it's written by 
Gandalf, something about my life that they have no connection with at all. And equally, for, for someone who's come to it because they're, they're interested in Shakespeare and want to know the musings of, a, of an actor who's done a lot of Shakespeare, are they going to have any interest at all in Tolkien? So Edna O'Brien, the great novelist, said to me, Ian, write it for your mother, who died when I was 12. Tell her what's been going on and what you've been doing. Well, that's lovely, isn't it? Mm. But uh, that that would do for Edna, but it, I don't think it would do for me. So I, I, so I kept drawing blanks and thinking, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to write this book. Perhaps it shouldn't be a book, a, a narrative at all. It should be a series of, of sketches and, and, and diagrams and, and, and go to page 134 for more on this subject. You know, that sort of book, a sort of encyclopedia. And I thought, my God, an encyclopedia about my life is getting... No. So I gave myself the nine months back and, and, and had a lovely time doing, I can't really remember what now, not very much actually, uh, enjoying myself. So, so this film is an alternative? Well, then Joe Stevenson, a young filmmaker I'd admired enormously for his first feature, Chicken, I do recommend it, said could, could he do a, an experiment with the idea of doing a, a, a one-man documentary? And... Uh, which involved me sitting in this room where we are now, and uh, and I talked to him, answered his questions for, for nine and three days, and said an awful lot. And it did feel, oh, this is territory that I might have been exploring, um, uh, re-exploring in, in, in the book. Uh, it wasn't really a film that, uh, that I could imagine, or, or that I didn't think it was my duty to imagine. I was just the subject of it, and anyone seeing it will... will <laughs> Keep hearing me say, "What am I doing?" You uh, do, yes. And more than that, who am I? That—that's the big problem. Who is this who's talking now? Uh, I've I, I just heard my own voice. It's coming out rather Lancashire at the moment, which is where I was born and bred. But for years, I spent covering up that accent. I think didn't think it was appropriate if you were going to play Hamlet. You know, if you're going to play the Prince of Denmark, you shouldn't have a shouldn't have a Bolton accent. Why not? Albert Finney was doing doing it with a Salford accent, and Tom Courtney. With a hull. So you think, wait, wait a minute, is, is that me? Is that my accent? Uh, am I going back to a... Is, is that the real McKellen? So the film is a little bit about... Is, is, is existential the world? I don't know. But it's not my film. I'm in it uh, all the time. It's about me. But I didn't initiate it, and nor did I have any plan at all. So, it, no, it's Joe Stevenson's yes. film. And we see Milo Parker, who is, who is in Mr. Holmes, is your young sidekick. Here he is back again, most engaging presence he is, and he's playing the younger you, which is wonderful. Well, it's a simple idea that Joe had, that when I'm telling a story about my past, suddenly you cut to young Milo being me, acting out the episode, and if I speak, he mimes to my voice. And that goes all the way through. So uh, Sean Mathias, my ex... Uh, and, and a director I, I love to work with plays Tyrone Guthrie, the first uh, theatre director who made a huge impact on me as a young man. And so Sean plays and mimes to my words that I remember. And uh, David Fox, another good pal, is, is, is plays the the man who uh, allowed me into Cambridge after an, an interview there when I did a bit of Shakespeare for him. So all these friends turn up, uh, Francis, Francis Barber and uh, Luke Evans and so on. So it becomes like a family reunion a bit. One of my favourite bits, uh, there's lots in the, uh, in the movie, obviously, about how theatre defined you uh, as a person. But you say that 
uh, early on you thought that films don't want me. And then you remember that your colleagues were saying, but you were always bellyaching about not being in the movies. So was it, do you think that you actually were yearning to be in more movies, even though you don't remember it like that? My parents took me to the theatre from a very early age, and my sister, who was uh, really keen on theatre, and remained so to the end of her life. She was a teacher, but uh, but an, an amateur actor and, and director, and worked in the amateur box office and everything. They all took me to the theatre. But we went very rarely to the cinema, to the pictures, the flicks. I think because in Wigan, where we were living at the time, my parents had the sense that... Um, they were flea pits, and uh, and some of them were. And when uh, polio was going round uh, the country, I mean, you didn't go into public places and mix with other people in case you got this dreadful disease. And I, I was told, I was told by my parents, you must not go to the fair because the, the, there was this uh, bug that you might catch. So I think very early age, when I thought about actors, I thought of actors on the stage. And increase, of course, it was much easier in those days to be a theatre actor. How could you possibly be in a film? These days, of course, nothing easier. You, every student can, can film himself or herself on their, on their iPhone and, and, and make, make a film for nothing. Well, you couldn't do that as a kid. When I was a kid, but you could put on a play for nothing. You stand up and do it. Whether it was in your living room or, or, or with my toy theatre behind the, the clothes horse with a, a towel over it. By the time I, I became a professional actor, I'd had an awful lot of experiences as an as a amateur actor on the stage, but none at all in front of a camera. And when I did my first TV and first film, it was just assumed I'd know what I was doing, though, but I didn't. And, and it took me ages, I mean decades, to come to terms with what was required of an actor in front of uh, a camera. And I used to say to directors, please, I don't know what I'm doing. Will you please help me? Yes, don't you worry. But they never did. They never gave me a single note. And I would grub around. I I would watch Michael Caine on the television talking about how to act in front of a camera and think, oh, oh, I see, that's what I do. (laughs) So I've learnt on the job. But now I've I've done so many films and, and... uh, for long stretches with directors who, who have, know what they're doing and I do pick up a few tips I really enjoy it, it it's fascinating as fascinating as, as in earlier days was, was acting for a live audience You say in this particular film you would like to divide your film appearances before Richard III and after Richard III what is the difference and why did that film make such an impact? Well, I knew what I was doing. It was a performance I'd been giving, you know, for 18 months or so for the Royal National Theatre's production directed by Richard Eyre. And I wrote the screenplay with his encouragement, and although he couldn't direct it because he was running the National Theatre, uh, I had landed myself as a potential producer of a film, which I'd never done that before. And I entered the film world and for two years went round to Hollywood and asking people to invest in this idea and, and, and finding a director. Lucked out with Richard Longcrane and, and an amazing cast, Maggie Smith, Jim Broadbent and many others, Jim Carter, Annette Benning, Robert Downing Jr. Suddenly I, w- I was in the real world of films and, and I was the top dog. I was playing the main part. I'd done the screenplay and I was the producer. When it worked and I could spend my time as an actor just 
working out how to do it for the camera. I didn't have to work out what it was I was doing. I knew I'd learned that uh, for the previous 18 months. Uh, I felt I'd sort of grown up and the word went round that Owen McKellen could be trusted in front of a camera uh, and was one of us and wasn't a visitor to the world of uh, film. He was a genuine filmmaker. I haven't proved that since. I've never gone back to producing (laughs) or doing screenplays, but uh, I I think that was the big divide. I was thought to be reliable and... uh, Richard III is a very good film. I, I, I can see that. And I'm very, very proud to have, have made it. And some of your biggest roles, you observe uh, that they're show-offs. So whether it's Magneto, whether it's Gandalf or James Whale, that they're, you, you seem to be naturally drawn to these. That's your, that's your phrase, show-offs. Would you, would you yeah. stick with that? I suppose so. Well, I, I, most actors are, aren't they, show-offs? All the world's a stage. All the men and women, may have occurred to you, are merely players, you see. Acting is an intensely human activity, and the animals don't do it. Uh, it's what we do. We're all pretending all day long. We're all, we're all selecting what side of our personality we will present. And it's different for different people, you know. But what you say, the language you use at home to your grandparents is different from the language you use in the playground at school or in the workplace. We're all so capable of that. So... Uh, to, to observe in the character that you're given uh, to play uh, how good they are at acting, how good they are at being a human being, to that extent, is a good, a good approach. And I suppose it isn't just me, you know, who decides what I play. It's the people who offer me the parts. I, 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 I initiate very little. Even this film, all about myself, is not some, wasn't my idea. It was an idea that somebody else brought to me, so... So uh, people must have observed that I'm good at doing this sort of thing rather than something else. Uh, There's no message that I'm giving to the world about uh, myself or anything, really. I do do what I'm asked to do, on the whole. And what do we see you in next? What has caught your attention? What is uh, interesting you? Well, there's a line in Gods and Monsters that Bill Condon directed and and, uh, for which he won the Oscar as as the screenplay writer... Uh, Making movies is the most wonderful thing in the world. Working with friends, entertaining people. Well, you could say as much for any job you were enjoying, I suppose. In my world, certainly the theatre, that would apply. So when Bill Condon asked me to be in our fourth film, he did Mr. Holmes, and I was briefly in uh, Beauty and the Beast, I said yes with almost without reading the script, which turned out to be The Good Liar, a very popular novel written, first novel written by a Yorkshireman, uh, uh, never mind, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's, uh, it's about being old in part, it's, it's about the past and, and whether you can ever be reconciled to it, and it's about a con man, so acting again, um, con men are easy to play, if they're good con men, as, as my character is, because uh, you just have to play what they seem to be. Iago, very easy part. Don't play a bad man. You just play a good guy. Honest Iago. Kind Iago. Friendly Iago. Thank you, Iago. The guy is always there. Dependable. Not not, not the man who's got terrible, terrible psychotic problems inside. They just let them look after themselves. You, you just get on with the surface. 
uh, and and uh, so playing this common. And I'm back with Helen Mirren, who I've not worked with since uh, we did a play on Broadway together, uh, Dance of Death, and, and other friends too. So, oh, just wonderful. And we're filming in London, and I can sleep in my own bed at night. Uh, uh, that, that, that's such a treat. The locations are all within easy reach. And, that, and then it's back to King Lear, which I did in Chichester last year. So I carry on, uh, and uh, I suppose that's that's what I've observed about being my age. If you can carry on, do I think for me? I don't have the distraction, wonderful distraction of a, of a family, you know, of children and grandchildren. I hear friends who have that talk about them all the time. That is their life, and they produced the, these offspring, and that's their job completed. My job's not completed because there's always a new script, hopefully, and so new a new adventure, and that keeps me going. And uh, uh, if I know I've got to go on a long journey, either mentally or emotionally or, or physically, then I better get myself fit to do it. I've got to go to the gym, better do Pilates again, better do a bit of stretching, better watch my diet, you know. And all that's very good with um, at any age. So I'm uh, really in, enjoying my life because I know there's not much of it left. You are very aware of that, and nobody warns you about that. Death is inevitable. You don't know when it's coming, but you can be absolutely certain when you're 80, which I am next year, is that it's imminent. Well, um, I think it, it falls to me then, Ian, to say, let's hope it's not imminent and uh, you have a couple of decades at least still to go. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, it's possible, of course. It's possible. And uh, I'm not much of a monarchist, but I do take the Queen as some sort of inspiration. She seems to be still at it and others too. So, uh, yes, I hope to be one of them, but you never know. No, you don't know, of course. Mm. Ian McKellen, thank you so much. Always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. That was uh, Sir Ian McKellen speaking to me on uh, on Monday when we went to his house and made us uh, extremely uh, welcome. I would say he's extremely trim. He looks right. amazing. His handshake uh, is incredibly strong. I like a good handshake. And uh, he he looked amazing. So I think let's hope that he does have another couple of decades because he clearly has an awful lot to offer. But in such reflective mood so I, uh, I think I asked the last question like three or four minutes before the end but he yeah. just wanted to talk about Leah and wanted to talk about aging and wanted to talk about losing friends and wanted to talk about how long he had left yeah now I haven't seen McKellen playing the part yet but it's directed by Joe Stevenson who I absolutely love I'm I was slightly disappointed that you, when he said Joe Stevenson who made chicken you didn't say yes which was royally championed by Mark because I absolutely love chicken I think was, maybe that that moment that was, was edited out yes, yes that's right that's um right. so and you didn't really review it in that and it's not out yet. It's not. It's out, not out until the. Uh, it's coming out on uh, May the twenty fourth. Okay. Um. So just a, a sort of brief, brief sort of thumbs up, thumbs down as a as a as a film in itself. Should I be excited? Well, because I, I really, really like Joe. May twenty seventh is when it's coming out. May twenty seventh. Well, yeah. I, I suppose you, you wouldn't get excited about it. What I mean is because it's a, it's a reflective. It's like that. It's what you hear there. Uh, Ian McKellen reflecting on his life, telling stories, and what he, what Joe Stevenson. I could listen to done. that voice forever. Yes, and there were many points when I was sitting because we're sitting on the on the sofa next to each other, yeah. thinking, "I'm this is Gandalf, and this is this extraordinary voice, uh, which he has." And he was getting more and more Lancashire as, uh, uh, as, <laughs> as we went through uh, uh, 
uh, the interview. And uh, he, when we were talking about the, the Joe Stevenson sort of tricks that he does, is that he he it's the, it's a really nice twist that he gets these other actors playing him in previous years. So Scott Chambers is one of the people who's in the film who also is the star of Chicken. So I imagine he's one of those. And when and when but so when Ian McKellen speaks the words in the documentary. It's sort of it's lip synced with the actors in, oh, right. in okay. these black and white fine, clips. Fine, fine. So it's you know it's neatly done. It's uh, the hour and a half flies past. Also, if you'd had more time for the interview, Simon, I know that you would have said, of course, when you're talking about Richard the Third, film directed by Richard Longcrane, who of course most famously directed the Citizen Kane of British pop movie Slade in Flame, and I'm sure that Serene would have had a, a load to say about again. That, that was again, time, that... time time didn't allow you to fully explore that that area. <laughs> Yeah, well, he was—he just—he—he he, he says in the film he measures everything that he's done as before Richard the Third and after Richard the Third. He kind yeah. of got it after Richard the yeah. Third, having produced it and having done the screenplay. But he clearly didn't want to go back there and do it ever again. I love that idea when he's talking about characters. Well, you just play them. You don't play them as a villain. You just play them. like the, like obviously that's something that all of us could do. Yeah, well, you could you, you just play. You just At times, it was a bit like having an acting masterclass because he was just just riffing on uh, on the subject. I I have to say I am disappointed about him not writing his autobiography. And listening again to his reasons for not writing it, the only one that made sense was that he couldn't remember very much. Yeah, but I thought that lovely piece of advice about writing it for your Edna mother. Edna O'Brien said, writing it for your mother. Which and is, I thought uh, yeah. that would have unlocked it. Yeah, absolutely. Tell your mother who passed away so many years ago, tell her about your life. And everything but you've done. Yeah. He said, good enough for Edna O'Brien, not good enough for me. <laughs> anyway, so that film, McKellen playing the part, is out on May the 27th. If you get a chance to see it, it is certainly worth an hour and a half of your time. Uh, very nicely made by your friend, Joe Stevenson. Joe Stevenson. So we're here for another hour. We have uh, lots of movies to discuss, an interesting variety. What is coming up? Deadpool 2, Jeune Femme on Chesil Beach, film worker, Cambodian Spring, and the return of 2001. It's 50 years old. Blimey. You ran through all those as though it was like one film title. It was one film title. Okay. It's a big movie. Six minutes past three. Hello, good afternoon. Movies till four o'clock. Interesting hearing Colin Murray talking about his very fine podcast. We're off to the podcast awards, which is on Saturday night. Saturday night. Saturday night. Saturday, Saturday night. night. No, you, you missed one out. Saturday night. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Anyway. Um, because it's the British Podcast Awards. None of those pesky American ones. Yeah, and we won. We won a, a popular vote last year, so we just go. And we didn't. We couldn't make it last year, but we're going to go and make up for it this year by having a yeah. But that's a, really interesting. Last year was the year that we didn't go, so we we won. This year is the year that we go, and we go. Oh, well oh, done! Okay. When someone else does, have some salad. Can you bring the the trophy in so that I can at least see it? I've never seen it. I've never. Has Puppet Master Robin got it? Yeah, Puppet Master's got it. By the way, did you notice on the uh, on that little kind of five live sweeper that it says you know on digital radio and on your phone and all that it also says and on smart speaker yeah what's that th is that what we are no i don't think it is oh, i isn't think it? Oh, that's okay. where it's when in some households you could say hey siri subscribe me to the wittertainment podcast please as soon as you like and then that oh. was very sneaky that's what you've just okay very good and i've just subscribed myself to the thing again anyway i think it's when you talk to you talk to the speaker and then it plays yeah. you um five yeah. live in my case play me fly of live now in my case that's linda can you make the radio work linda how does the television work <laughs> hmm. anyway uh tell me about the movies that you're going to be reviewing deadpool 2 uh jeune femme on chesil beach film worker 2001 
All to come uh, in the 2001, hour. as they call it in America. Mayo at bbc.co.uk on the email. There is a Right Royal Witterlist special today uh, on our page. This is on the uh, the BBC website, which has five films to watch and five to avoid ahead of tomorrow's nuptials, which you might have heard a little bit in the. I was slightly di- not quite sure on the news when it was a you know mystery surrounds who's going to make the dress, you know, and I, I haven't been involved in that mystery. No, I should also say, as far as the Witter list is concerned, that it was, it's come up on the radio as Mark picks your wedding films. No, no, I didn't. No, the Witter list exists in and of itself, and they have chosen reviews that I've done of films, but I didn't hand-pick them. The Witter list picks them because it is a, it's a hive mind. Is that right? Nice it's a hive mind, yes. Anyway, uh, Mamma Mia is up there, of course, which Mark called Strangely Wonderful. Bridesmaids. Mamma Mia, Mark here we go again, is coming soon. Uh, I know that. Uh, but in the list to avoid is The Princess Bride. I'm not quite sure why it's there to avoid. Oh, well, I didn't think it's there to avoid. Anyway, the, apparently there, there is... I love The Princess There's quite a lot of speculation that Justin Welby is going to, when he does the marriage tomorrow, that he, he will... He's going to do... Marriage, marriage is what brings us together. together. Today. <laughs> um, Kill Bill Volume 2, with the bride getting a bird song in the bird song, uh, and uh, Bride Wars, about which Mark said, it's only a chick flick, <laughs> in that if you grind it up and gave it to battery hens, it might be better served than running it through a projector. Did I say that? That's well, quite, if you did That's quite funny. No, that, I'll take it. I will absolutely take that. That looks quite good written down. Yeah, good. It was probably even funny when you said Well, I said it off the, off the cuff. Uh, anyway, so uh, we'll put the link out now on our top quality social media platforms where it will enhance our already very high standard and supremely engaging digital content. So you're going to say our already very high salary. But that speculation is, is mounting about who designed the dress. Yeah. I, th- I just thought it was... A dressmaker, probably. Who do you, is think, it, who do you think made it? I thought Daniel Day-Lewis had done it. Wouldn't that be something special? Because you absolutely believe that he could have done. He absolutely could have done. Uh, it's ten minutes past three. Uh, time to review something. So Deadpool two. If you will remember, cast your mind back to my review of Deadpool when it came out. This was sort of Ryan Reynolds as this potty mouthed Avenger taking an enjoyably anarchic swipes at superhero franchises, and I had gone in sort of feeling slightly cynical about it because it looked very much from the outside like a kind of a more corporate version of Kick-Ass. And although I think that there was an element of that, I did enjoy Deadpool much more than I thought I was going to. I thought the kind of Vis-style um, sweary dialogue was very funny. I thought the anarchic fourth wall breaking, a fourth wall within a fourth wall, that's like 16 walls. All that stuff made me laugh. And although in the third act it got down to the business of being a, you know, smashy, chasey, punchy movie, which is, you know, what kind of happens in the third act of superhero movies. Up until that point, I thought it had done a much better job of subverting the the genre conventions than than I had expected it to. So that film didn't cost a huge amount of money, less than 60 million, took a massive amount of money. So now, inevitably, here we come with the sequel. It's back. It's bigger. Is it better? Some of the initial signals were good. I mean, the fact that uh, Julian Dennison's in the cast, who was so brilliant in Hunt for the Wilder People. Set up is basically this time um, having faced tragedy in his life. Um, Deadpool has to discover whether his heart is in the right place. And as he goes on that journey to discover whether his heart is in the right place, his paths cross with those of Cable, played by Josh Brolin. The name's Cable. I'm from the future. Just walk away. Oh, so you're from the future. 
I have three questions then. One, is dubstep still a thing? Two, which Sharknado are we on? And three, at what point do audiences say, enough with the robotic arms? You're so dark! Do you say you're from the DC universe? Now, that, was that Birdsong? Yeah, no. this, it's, it's excellent, <laughs> excellent use of birds. It's song. not just us. There. I would, I would quite have liked Josh Brolin to say, "I'm Cable, Vince Cable, <laughs> Vince Cable." That would have been good. <laughs> and I'm here to say no. For, anyway, um, so I went into Deadpool to I went into Deadpool with fairly low expectations, and I enjoyed the film more than I thought I was going to. Although it's not Kickass, but it's looking toward that area. I went into Deadpool two with much higher expectations, not least because uh, Jack Howard, is a friend, um, had seen it and very much liked it. And I was very, very disappointed. Um, it seemed to me that this is a film which costs twice as much as the original and ends up being half as funny. And whereas the original had this kind of utterly flippant, sort of flipping the bird, um, you know, anarchic quality to it, what they doing with the sequels. They think, okay, fine. Well, now we have to ramp everything up. So we, we need to make it, firstly, we need to make it about more serious subject matter. We need to do it about parents and children and loss and tragedy and, you know, genuine t- attempt to deal with some of those things genuinely, attempt to give some of the characters proper roundedness, which I don't want from Deadpool. I don't want for many Deadpool characters. I want flippancy. I want two-dimensionality. I want wisecracking. I don't want any sense of depth. I want that no lessons learnt thing. The second thing is that... Um, it takes its central journey about whether or not you find, you know, if your heart is in the right place, which sounds at the beginning like one of those cheesy setups that you would do with one of the pop songs that the film uses so often in such a cheesy way. But it actually starts to take it quite seriously. And also from the very, very beginning, it's evident that the action sequences are now being done as proper big action sequences that are competing with other action sequences. So whereas um, the third Deadpool moves towards, the first Deadpool moves towards a third act in which, okay, now we fall down into the smashy, bashy stuff. Deadpool 2, from the very beginning, seems to set out its stall saying, well, we need to have proper, you know, proper rip-roaring chase sequences, proper rip-roaring fights, proper rip-roaring smash-up, you know, things that will keep you on the edge of your seat. And, you know, my experience has been, firstly, comedy is rarely improved by money. Secondly, um, sharp, acerbic comedy is very rarely improved by attempting to give a movie a kind of sentimental message of the kind that it would have sneered at in the past. And I started thinking, you know, this is actually reminding me, and I don't say this lightly, of Kick-Ass 2. Now, it's nothing like as bad as Kick-Ass 2, because Kick-Ass 2 is a really, really terrible film which undid all the work of the first Kick-Ass. But there is a slightly similar thing, which is you've, you've forgotten the th- exactly the thing that made the first movie work. In the case of Kick-Ass, Kick-Ass was an independently funded, funded film, was then picked up by a studio in toto. You, had to, this is, you either take the film like this or you don't take it. Deadpool was never that in the first place, so the level of sort of anarchic outsiderness was never that great. And so the move from the first film to the second film isn't as catastrophic. And I don't think the second film is, is terrible, but I did find it quite dull. And I also found that although it looked like everybody was having a really good time making it, that old maxim about fun on set very rarely translates to fun on screen seemed really, really, you know, to be, to be the case. So what you got was 
a character whose smugness in the first film was funny because it was so objectionable actually just became a little bit pleased with itself. You got a self-referentiality that no longer was attempting to tear its own universe apart, but was actually just building on on in jokes in a way that are you know that were very very pleased with themselves. You got action sequences that okay yeah they're fine they're perfectly well executed action sequences in which absolutely everyone's indestructible so it really doesn't make any difference anyway and there's no genuine consequence. Plus, you're putting that off against a central story, which is trying against all the odds to make you go, yeah, but beneath the surface, there is a proper story going on here. So I thought it ended up falling between two stools. I, I, I really wish that I had enjoyed it more. I went in with higher expectations and they weren't met. The first film, I went in with lower expectations and they were hugely exceeded. I liked the scrappiness of the first film up to a point. I wanted that scrappiness to exist in the second film and I didn't find it did. And I, 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 I hate to say this. I hate to say this. I was quite bored. Chris Cocker, on an email, just got home from a 4DX viewing of Deadpool 2. With okay, my 4DX oldest... is when you sit in the chair and it rumbles and plays, wow. you know, things. That, I think that's right, yeah. Deadpool 2, my oldest son of 15 years, much to the disappointment of my other two, who are too young to see it and had to stay with the good lady Professor Her indoors. Another one. We have to say that it was a fantastic movie. Past the six laugh tests with flying colours, plenty of action until the very end, and at two hours long it kept us interested until the end. It even passed what I call the toilet test because my kids always go at least once during a movie. So if they don't... It's a sign. It's a great film. <laughs> okay. Um, that, that, that incidentally was the Jack Warner test. Jack Warner of Warner's, Warner Brothers, who used to judge how good a movie was by how often he had to go to the loo. And he said of Bonnie and Clyde, that is a 3P picture. Meaning he that didn't it, like he it. didn't like it. Lewis Dunn uh, in York, age 25. As a big comic book nerd and fan of the first Deadpool film, I was genuinely quite excited to see the sequel to a film I consider one of the better adaptations of a comic character to screen. Not only did this film not disappoint, it blew me away. The cartoony high-level violence felt incredibly inspired and was used not only for its squeamish... Not only for it, not just for its squeamish gore. The story, while irritatingly clichéd at the start, developed into something quite moving and even had me welling up at one point. Can I just say... Okay. <laughs> yes, it didn't, but that's the point. I don't want to be welling up at a Deadpool film, which, which I wasn't anyway. Overall, a spectacular and hilarious film that captures the comic in all the right ways and feels like no other series. A hyperactive juvenile bloodbath that's as funny as it is stupid. The perfect film for fans of Deadpool. Uh, Bill Welch. I've this been is going to be an across-the-board uh, uh, rave, isn't it? I've been to the cinema a few times recently to catch Marvel's last few big, eagerly anticipated offerings. And while I enjoyed these films, I felt somewhat underwhelmed. As a fully paid-up member of the MCU fan club, I know this view would be frowned upon, and I can only put it down to my own condition rather than the material. However, DPT... Uh, Deadpool 2. Yeah, oh, yeah, there you go. Was, I thought it was some kind of thing. Uh, it was a sheer delight. I would go as so far as to say it was a perfect film. A sequel is always a worry after such an unexpected hit as the original and the fact that Ryan Reynolds seemed to have been building towards the character throughout his career to the point that the line between actor and character are indistinguishable. It was quite a worry that the second... And that becomes a problem because that's what I mean about being smug and self-referential. ...would collapse under its own expectations and be too much, but this is not the case. It was hilarious with a good story, fantastic pace and surprising depth. 
Um, Peter caught again. Surprising depth, not what I want from Deadpool. An IMAX screening of Deadpool on Tuesday, Deadpool two on Tuesday evening. And while I hear there have been a few less than friendly reviews by some critics, in my opinion, and those of a packed cinema, it was another hilarious, thrilling, breakneck ride through the fourth wall breaking world that is Deadpool giving it both Marvel and DC comic book films with both barrels. Also, Blink and You'll Miss Them cameos, a cracking soundtrack. So yes, it may not be as groundbreaking or important as others in the genre, but for me, it's certainly one of the most fun and absolutely smashed the 20 laugh test and gave me my new favourite comic book character. Okay, well, I am completely out of step with all of those emails, but I, you know... Tell it like I see it. Luke Curtis in Essex. Deadpool 2 takes everything that works from the first film and just turns it up a notch. The jokes are funnier. Past the 10 laugh test before the opening titles, the violence is more intense and it has an added quite intense emotional side that really works thanks to a bigger cast, all of whom add to the film with memorable characters. One scene was so funny, I was in hysterics. Funniest scene I've watched for years. I'm struggling to think of a film that had the audience laughing as often or as loudly. I wish that that had been the case. I really wish that it had been the case. Insufficient laughter. I, you know, I, and I'll I'll come back to this again. I genuinely don't think that comedy is well served by increased budget. I think the more money you throw at something, the less funny it becomes. I mean, look at, you know, Mad Mad World, for heaven's sakes. Anyway. You've lost me there. I have... Well, it was just, or, actually, I like Hudson Hawk, but I like Hudson Hawk for all the wrong reasons. Generally, comedy. Okay, how about Monty Python: The Meaning of Life? Cost nothing. Cost. Oh no, no, no. Monty Python: The Meaning of Life was expensive in, in terms of Monty Python films, and is the least funny one. There yeah. you go. Although I'm, I'm helping you. You are, although I'm helping you comparatively in the world of you know Monty Python and cost nothing. Monty Python: The Holy Grail cost absolutely nothing. Monty Python's Life of Brian. They kept thinking they were going to have to shut down because they were running out of money. Uh, finally, Mook says, uh, my wife and I saw Deadpool 2 last night. We were, I've just found this for you. Okay? Yes, go ahead. We were both very disappointed after having enjoyed the first movie so okay. much that we've watched it several times. I really wonder if it's suffering from difficult second album syndrome, where the first was such a labour of love and took so long to get it made at all, that the best ideas were used up. I didn't think it was terrible, but it did feel flat. And though it raised a chuckle, I remember guffawing and sometimes crying with laughter through the first movie. In Deadpool 2, I thought the funniest sequence was the end credit scene. It felt like a really good cast in need of a much better script. Mrs. Mook's review, on the other hand, was simply honking. Honking? Well, and then Mook says, I don't know about our brothers and sisters south of the border, but in Scotland, that is very much not good. Oh, I thought honking as in honking with laughter. Yes, no, okay, no, fine. Honkingly bad. Oh, I see, fine, okay. Anyway, that is okay. Deadpool 2. Okay. Oh, by the way, um, Shosh Goller uh, in New York City says, uh, I speak to Alexa, the smart, this is on Spart Speaker. Smart Speaker. Spart Speaker. I speak to Alexa to hear, to hear you when I cook on Fridays. I say, hey, Alexa, play five live, and there you are. Thanks to you and Alexa and other smart speakers are of us. So many smart speakers. Smart speakers. I'm a smart speaker. No, I'm a smart speaker. Uh, it's 3.23. What else have we got? Jeune not? Femme, which is uh, directed by Alina Saray and uh, which was a Cannes Prize winner last year. Um, the writer-director says it's, a, it's about a film about a journey from somebody being a girl to a woman from object to subject. So Letitia Dosh is 31-year-old Paula at the beginning uh, we meet her. She's just broken up with her long-standing partner, who's a photographer, come professor. She's almost homeless. She pinballs around Paris with a loo roll in her hair and a cat in a box, searching for an identity to call her own. And 
she's told at the beginning, well, you're a free woman, although actually unmoored would be a, a better description. There's one sequence in which she, she looks at herself in a broken mirror and she sees her fractured reflection. The first time we meet her, she is literally banging her head on the door of her apartment, screaming, let me in, let me in. So it's like somebody who's been shut out of the, of, of the world that she inhabited and she's trying to find who she is. And during the course of the movie, we then see her trying on a series of different personalities. I mean, you know, there's that thing in, in Moonlight, who is you? And the question, who are you, keeps recurring all the way through Jeune Femme. Or if you think of a film like Personal Shopper, when central character is trying on clothes and therefore becoming different people. So there's this this lovely sort of kaleidoscopic portrait of somebody just trying to decide who to be. At one point, she goes for an interview um, to work in an underwear store, and she so they say, well, describe yourself. She says, well, I'm obsessively tidy, and I love clearing things up, which we know to be completely untrue. She gets a job as a nanny by saying that she's an art student, which she absolutely isn't. She's working in a store down the road. She pretends to be different. At one point, she's mistaken for somebody's old school friend, and she happily accepts the identity, firstly because she wants friendship, but secondly because it's like she wants to become someone else. So I thought it was a really brilliant portrait of a kind of kaleidoscopic fractured personality. It's also a story about mothers and daughters. She is estranged from her mother. She starts nannying and initially it's not something that she she seems to be as childlike as the child that she's looking after. But then a bond forms that sort of seems to be a maternal bond, but maybe it's something else. And all these kind of actually quite serious themes are going on. But the movie has the, the kind of air of a of a kind of chaotic character comedy, a sort of brittle, slightly bleak comedy about somebody on a journey from who they were to who they are going to be. The film is made with a largely, almost entirely, uh, women crew. Um, it's absolutely centrally about this, uh, the, 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 the character at the heart of the drama, which is an absolutely brilliant performance by Letitia Dosh. Um, it's funny, but it's also very, very moving. Uh, the, the, the takes are handheld and in your face, and occasionally it can be like being in the company of somebody who's urgent and won't stop talking. And the film has an anxious, nervous energy which really frizzed off the screen and which I really, really enjoyed. The soundtrack goes from electro to jazz in a way that completely encapsulates her sort of dissonant personality. I loved it. I thought it was just great. I thought it was really good. A really interesting portrait of a character who can be sometimes likable, sometimes unlikable. She can repel and attract at the same way. You completely believe in her. You completely believe in the characters that she's trying on. And you completely believe in her journey and her environment. It's called Jeune Femme and I loved it. Uh, 326, do you want to do another movie before the news and sport? Do we you... do Chesil Beach or do you want me to keep Chesil that? Chesil Beach until... far away in time. Or I'll tell you what I could do. I could do Film Worker and then we'll do Chesil Beach other side of the thing. Let's yeah. do that. Okay, so Film Worker is a really interesting documentary. Um, it's about Leon Vitale and his extraordinary dedication to Stanley Kubrick. He was an, an accomplished actor who had a role in Barry Lyndon and he'd seen... 2001 and Clockwork Orange and decided that what he wanted to do with his life was to work with Stanley Kubrick. So when he got the role in in Barry Lyndon, he was astonished. And whilst making the film, because with Kubrick films, there's a lot of time that you spend waiting for things to be done, doing things over and over and over and over and again, because Kubrick was such a, an obsessive and perfectionist. So while he was doing this, he started to watch and study other areas of the craft of filmmaking and decided that actually that's where his future lay. Here's a clip. I kind of thought, well, this is going to be quite tough actually i said to stanley that i'm beginning to get quite interested in your whole sort of technical side of it and everything that has to go into the making of a movie and i'd be quite interested to work in that area and he said to me if you really are serious about it leon 
do something about it and let me know. And he gave me a Christmas gift, a beautiful art book. It says, Dear Leon, thank you for your great talent, energy and kindness. Sincerely, Stanley. It almost brought tears to my eyes. It was so touching. So touching, but equally could be quite terrible, as the film demonstrates. Working with him could be a very, very difficult procedure. But what happens is Leon Vitali basically decided to dedicate his life to working with Stanley Kubrick, and he became... Kubrick's right hand, he started doing umpteen different jobs. He was out casting the kid for the central role of The Shining. He was researching soldiers for Full Metal Jacket. He was overseeing prints and colour timing. He was dealing with the distributors and becoming the in-between man between Stanley Kubrick and all the people that he had to deal with. At the same time, he was archiving the stables in which Stanley Kubrick famously kept all his boxes of information. And there are post-its that we see in the thing, which are Leon clean the pool room, make the cat box. I mean, stuff that ranged from the utterly trivial to the completely overarching. And what the film does, we hear at one point, Ryan O'Neill saying that he almost wanted to to free him. He almost wanted to get him to escape from, because working for Kubrick, it wasn't even working for, being part of that Kubrick thing was such, it really took over his life. And um, I think the thing that's really fascinating is, the documentary tells you firstly a story about a character who's been sidelined and, you know, is not given the respect that he deserves for what he did to preserve the Kubrick archive, to ensure that Kubrick's films were seen in the way they should have been seen, to to help enact Kubrick's absolutely extraordinary meticulousness. I mean, whether you like Kubrick's films or not, and I remain slightly agnostic about them. I mean, I, you know, I'm I, I think some of them are great and some of them aren't so great. But, you know, I think his obsessive level to deta- uh, attention to detail is interesting, not it, always productive. I think Eyes Wide Shut is all over the place. But Leon Vitali had basically decided that he was going to make every, make himself a tool for Stanley Kubrick to to be able to bring his visions to the screen in the way that he wanted and then to preserve those visions and to make sure that they were always de- you know shown in the right color balance, the right format. And after Stanley Kubrick died, you know, towards the end of uh, Eyes Wide Shut, he made it his job to ensure that that legacy was looked after properly. And he didn't get a lot of thanks for it. And I think what's really fascinating about this film is called Film Worker. And he said that's in a lovely moment. He says, that's how I describe myself on my passport. People say, what are you? And I'd say, I'm a film worker, somebody who works in films. And he's very humble, very, very humble. And absolutely fascinating because it's a portrait of somebody who has decided to dedicate themselves to a particular artist and a particular form of art in a way that is quite all-encompassing and strangely selfless and really rather magical and very, very, very impressive. What's it called again? Film Worker. Okay. By the way, speaking on behalf of France, should it not be Jeune Femme? Yeah, what did I say? Jeune femme. Yeah, but yes, it should be. But it's, I, you know, my French accent is terrible. I was just, I was just. No, no, you f- anticipating femme. heading it yes. off at the pass. I think it's. Thank you very much. But I think everyone who listens to this show knows that my pronunciation of words in the English language is hard enough. Fine. Femme. Jeune femme. Jeune femme. Jeune La plume de ma tante. Tante. Anyway, well, can I say that when Mercedes McCambridge says it as the voice of Reagan, the possessed girl in The Exorcist, she says, La plume de matante. Well, Americans, French. It's a demon. It's a a, a Syrian demon of the southwest wind. And are you saying that Syrian demons of the wild west? A Syrian. A Syrian. 
you saying the that, wild wild west the wild wild west the wickedy wild wild west you saying that their french pronunciation should be just nodded through i'm sorry those standards might have been acceptable back in your day but that doesn't work anymore what are you doing in the next half hour i'll be doing on chesil beach 3:37 i've been i'm doing a thing i'm doing like a talk right on saturday afternoon what thing I'm, is that well i'm well it's, it's just a thing i'm convinced that the only people going to it will be uh, football hating Republicans because <laughs> everyone everyone else is going to be very busy. They were a punk band, weren't they? The Probably. Football hating Republicans. That's fine. TV movie of the week. Uh, Tom Vamos up late one night, but not really uh, quite ready for bed. I googled best films under ninety minutes. I found Slow West, an absolute oh, yeah, it's gem a, that, it's though lovely. accurately reflecting its name, being set in the West and not exactly a high octane romp, had me in its thrall for the full eighty four minutes. Perfect late night. Weekday viewing. Mark, however, will go for Walk the Line. Richard Hands. I watched Slow West on Mark's recommendation a couple of years ago when it came out and was very glad I did so. It's a lovely atmospheric western with an ending that I must admit. Mm-hmm. There are some other great films out this week, but The Martian, The Damned, United, and so on, already popular enough not to need cheerleaders. This is one it would be easy to overlook and which I'd urge you to watch. Tim Kenyon. I'd go with Damned United, a film that actually had. Me care about a game in which I have no interest or passion because the movie isn't about football. It's about a man desperately searching for the respect of his peers and players and not getting it. As others have said, Mark will likely pick Silent Running. Uh, Andy Watts, I've never understood what's so great about Silent Running, but may give it another go if Mark insists. Otherwise, I'll go with The Others. Lovely, low, creepy film, yeah, great film. which still gives me goosebumps. Joe Hughes says... Never did a film have a more appropriate title than As Good As It Gets. Starts brilliantly, but that's as good as it gets because it fiddles out halfway through. Helen Hunt and Jack Nicholson then went and won the Oscars. Uh, that should really have gone to Pam Greer and Samuel L. Jackson for Jackie Brown. Eddie, what is, t- what is, what, Eddie, what is TV Movie of the Week? Can what I is ask that? a question of the top team? Have I done Silent Running before? As a f- I oh, have. Yeah, so don't, we're don't disqualifying No, no, so we're disqualifying it. Good. Um, so I'm going to go with my original choice, which is Slow West. I really like Slow West. I thought it was a a really interestingly sort of low key film, and it takes you know Western ideas that you've seen before well, is from westerns, but does something interesting new with them. It's got the mu- the way the music is used is absolutely brilliant. I thought that John McClane did a really terrific job of bringing those elements of landscape and character and music together in a way which is you know strange and unexpected. And I and it's I think it's one six six as well as far as I remember. I'll look it up. I'll it's check what? it. I think it's one six six. Is it? You're talking about aspect ratios again. Yeah, I'm, I have a memory of it being one six six. What I, does that look like? Well, one three three. You know, four by three academy ratio is generally thought of as square. It's not square, but it's the old the old ratio, kind right. of like a face. One eight five is what used to be widescreen. One six six is slightly thinner than widescreen, and then two three five is what we now think of as widescreen, but is actually kind of you know cinerama or scope or, or whatever it is. What about two seven five to two eight five? What would that be? That would be um, capital, wouldn't it? That's no, Radio One. Radio was it? Okay, no, <laughs> fail, big fail. Okay, sorry. It is one six six. It is 166, yeah. thanks. Yeah, I have a memory of the... The thing that the 166 ratio does, which is interesting, is it gives you more height. Oh, that is interesting. So, you know, if you think about a, 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 like a scope landscape, you, it's horizons in which people can get lost. But 166, it's, it's wider than 4 by 3 but it gives you more height. It gives you a sense of... 
it's it's a slightly more human scale, but it's also got a lot of height in it. Okay, we're moving on now. Uh, t- <laughs> oh, have you had enough of that? Yes. T- Dave Norris, incidentally, is just listening to this bit of the podcast over and over again. Yeah, well, he's very excited by projectionist issues. TV movie of the week, so bad it's bad. Um, what have we got? Choices this week are The Proposal, Need for Speed, Over Her Dead Body, Police Academy 4, Citizens on Patrol and Ted 2. Jason Parks, I will nominate Police Academy for Citizen, Citizens on Patrol. You've got Maid of Honour as well. Did you say that? The, the original was actually not that bad. Number two had the great Bobcat Goldthwaite as Zed and a love scene between Tacklebury and Kirkland, which seemed to influence Riggs and Rennie Russo and Lethal Weapon 3. Number three was a further dilution of the formula, but almost decent when compared with four. Even as a teen, I knew it was time to bail out. Jason knows way too much about that. Oliver Triggs Bloom. All right, Oliver. Ted 2 is not completely terrible. It's just a huge disappointment, even to people who went along with the first one and wear their infantile and offensive humour as a badge of honour. Need for Speed is just a completely pointless combination of a rip-off and based on a computer game, doomed from the start. Uh, Jamie Pruden, I quite like Police Academy 4. Is that grounds for excommunication from the church? Thomas Cohen, Ted 2 makes Police Academy 4 look like Battleship Potemkin. So, uh, which is uh, an honour indeed. TV movie of the week, so bad it's bad, is... Well, I was going to go for something as any, but then has then been taken off the list because it's not actually it's not on a free view channel. So, I'm I'm looking at the kind of the. T- I mean, Ted Two is a disappointment, but it's not the worst film of the week. Well, what is then? That's the whole question. I, you know, I'm finding it quite hard to. Uh, I'm right. finding it hard to pick one of those. I was going to go for Made of Honor. I'm sorry. I'm going to put it back on again. I know it's not on the list, but I'm going to put it back on the list because no one's going to watch it, okay? So, Maid of Honour. The reason I say Maid of Honour is I've actually gone to some trouble to this. I, I, right, so here's, you, you've done some work and you're darned if you're not going to mention it. Yeah, so Maid of Honour, which I know we're not allowed to do because it's on a thing, but it was on my original list and I don't care. I, I looked up my original review of it and it said, imagine every marital rom-com of the past 20 years being boiled up into, the, into stodgy cinematic porridge and then sieved to, rema- to remove any vestigial traces of humour. Are you quoting yourself? Again? I am, and I thought that's it. So I'm going for that, even though it's a. But you know what? The best thing about it is, it's they won't be able to watch it. So with it's a public service. Who are you talking? Okay? When you I'm talking around. to Robin talk, and Simon. Talk to me or the listener, one of the two. That's why you are a Sony Award winner, and I. Oh no, hang on, I'm a Sony Award winner too. Well, just stop talking to them. That's the whole point. Femme, jeune femme. Rachel says um, le chat. And it's Sony. This week, my boyfriend and I had a trip to the UPP cinema in Oxford to see A Quiet Place, which I have to say is one of the best films I've seen recently. We were talking about this earlier. This was the second time I've been to see the film, and it was just as tense seeing it the second time around as it was the first. I picked up on lots of things I'd missed on the first viewing, and certain emotional scenes were more poignant. Everyone in the cinema was very considerate about not making noise by eating during the movie, except for one student who was a row in front of us. Not only did he open his packet of crisps, noisily making his way through the entire packet, tipping his head back to pour the contents into his mouth whilst rattling the packet, but after this he decided to eat an apple. Yes, an An actual crispy apple. He crunched his way through this and then after using his rustly paper napkin (laughs) to wipe his face, proceeded to blow his nose into the napkin, not quietly but at full force. Any other movie it probably would have been noticed, but in A Quiet Place... His crunching and munching 
was like thunder and was very distracting from what was happening on the screen. I refrained from kicking the back of his chair, and after a bout of giggling between him and his girlfriend, he also caught up with the intensity of the film, and we heard nothing more from him. Apart from oh, that, well, so, so the film did silence. Got him in the end. Apart from that inconsiderate student, I thoroughly enjoyed a second viewing of this film, and any film that leaves you talking about it for hours or even days afterwards gets at least ten gold stars. I have to say, when I spoke to you on the phone after you'd seen it, you seemed really, really hyped up about it. Well, I'm, and it was great because you're, it was it, it's the most enthusiastic I've heard you about film for a while. Well, I was, I was, uh, yeah. Well, I, I think you were really genuinely surprised by how good it was. I last weekend saw Tully and A Quiet Place, and I think they'll probably be two of my favourite films. Of yeah, what a great night out. And it, 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 shame you didn't watch Eurovision. Um, and us doing brilliantly despite, you know, difficult circumstances. Before, but, as we move on now, before Mark's going on, on about Eurovision again, uh, Chesil Beach. Yeah, on, don't say it like that. Chesil Beach, then. On Chesil on Beach. On Chesil Beach. On Chesil Beach. Here we go. Far away. Written by Ian McKellen. Yeah, and that's going to happen all the way through, isn't mm-hmm. it? So, um, adaptation of the book by Ian McEwan. Uh, for, for whom also wrote the screenplay directed by Dominic Cook starring Sir Sharon and Billy House so they're a, a couple uh, early 60s go to a hotel uh, by the beach for their honeymoon it's clear that neither of them have been physically intimate before and as the wedding night looms their anxieties seem to increase and as the evening plays out we flash back to their earlier lives we see the moments that have made them the people that they are sort of laying the groundwork for their current struggles with the you know with the ideas of intimacy they first uh, meet at a cnd meeting where he's just discovered that he has uh, got a first which he didn't expect to but he can't find anybody to celebrate with him so he he's wandering around he has a couple of drinks and he wanders into a cnd meeting because he just needs to tell somebody how well he's done and he meets Sir Jerome's character hello Hello. Would you like one? It's all about a hydrogen bomb landing on Oxford. Can't think of anything better. <laughs> Do you mind if I tell you something? I've got to tell someone. Tell me. <clears throat> I say. Do we know you? I just heard. I got a first. In history. That's fantastic. Let's get on with handing these out, shall we? All right. So you can hear from that clip, which I think very much sums up the, you know, the tone of the movie. It's, it's to do with, uh, you know, with, with things that are, uh, that are repressed, that are, that are understated, that are sort of held within. They have very different backgrounds. She comes from a posh family. Emily Watson is supremely imperious as her mother. There's a brilliant scene in which the father says... Those green things, what do we call them? She said, they're mange too. And she manages to wring every sort of, you know, moment of uh, withering contempt out of the words mange too. And they see him as at one point he's referred to as a bit of a country bumpkin, somebody who's more rooted in trade than perhaps they would ideally like. She's a musician, he's a historian. She dreams of performing in the particular concert hall. He wants to write a book about figures in history who have been sidelined. And then as we learn more about their their families we start to get this picture of how they've become who they are his mother is an artist who's suffering from um from brain damage uh and her behavior has been affected by an accident which has caused her to become weirdly uninhibited she is in a Richard Sacheron's character is an obsessive perfectionist she keeps using the phrase there were no mistakes nothing went wrong 
and it beca- becomes clear that this kind of this perfectionism, this there's often nothing to go wrong, is rooted in something in the past, and we start to see suggestions of where that might have come from in the behaviour of those around her in her family. Uh, it's a really interesting film because it's a very difficult subject to do on screen. You know, you think traditionally cinema has had a, a lot to say about sort of sexy romantic relationships. They're very easy to sell, you know, uh, that famous thing about, you know, all you need for a movie is a gun and a girl. That idea about the things that, that are traditionally cinematic ideas that will work. And this is kind of almost the opposite. It's like taking that and, and, and making it, you know, de- deconstructing it, making it distant asking where this distance comes from. And on the one hand, you have Chesil Beach outside, which is sort of wild and, you know, raw and elemental. But everything that's going on in the hotel room is really awkward. And there are these silences and repeated shots of people's feet being awkwardly balanced atop each other. Everything is to do with, with physicality. I think the performances are great. I really did believe in in the central couple and their alienation and their you know their their difficulty with intimacy. I thought the time shifts were handled really well. It's very difficult when you're shuffling time frames like that. And one of the th- interesting things that the film does is it uses music both to delineate and to bring together different time frames. So you know where you are, you know exactly where you are, but also music is used to to put different time frames next door to each other to make you know, connections between the past and the present. It's also admirably frank about its subject matter, which, as I said, is really not the sort of stuff that cinema traditionally thrives upon. I think there is some question about, as we move into the the later period of the film, whether it's whether the way in which it chooses to move the narrative it, it is going to entirely work for everybody. I, I have to say, on an emotional level, it did for me. On an emotional level, I kind of stuck with it, despite the fact that there are moments in the later section in which it was it, the, the, the plot contrivances became too much. There were certain cinematic techniques that had to be used to tell the story of the changing time period, mm-hmm. and I found them slightly distracting. I mean, almost distracting enough that, that it stopped working, and yet there was an emotional truth underneath that did hold it together. And I think what that says is that when the film is working, it's doing... It's doing the job well enough that it will see you through the slightly difficult periods. I also thought it was actually very moving, and and there is there is a sort of tragedy at the heart of it about this kind of this lack of connection about what love means, and and you know the, whether or not decisions made in an instant can blight a lifetime. And also, it touches on some very dark material. It does it quite discreetly, but there is a there is a sort of deep lying darkness in the background of it all. So I thought it was a, it was an ambitious attempt to do a, a very very difficult novel that has a very good crack at it. Um, I think there are there are some problems. I think it's a, a hard story to tell in the cinema, but I thought it did it pretty honourably. Uh, seven minutes to four o'clock. Uh, just a quick hello to Claire Tizard, uh, who's a long-term listener of 10 years, a colonial commoner, first-time emailer, today listening live in the New Forest for the first time ever. Narnia. I'm on holiday from Adelaide in South Australia, film claim to fame, the Babadook film there, and I'm enjoying your wittering live and loving the show. I was even excited by the novelty of news and sport. Uh, and I'm now keen to see film work <laughs> yes. before I leave the UK. I'd oh, good. So pleased if you could give me a cheerio, as it might be another 20 years before I'm listening live again. Well, even if you're in South Australia, you can listen live. You just have to 
get up in the middle of the night. Get up in the middle of the night. I mean, come on, Claire, we've mentioned you. At least show a little bit of it. Enjoy the New Forest, which is one of the most beautiful areas in the whole country. Uh, This from, uh, here we go, Jack Blackburn has sent in an email. All right, Jack. Having got tickets to see on Chesil Beach early, I first set out to read the novella which had been stuck in my pile of books to read for far too long. This was perhaps a mistake, as the book is one of McEwan's most viscerally upsetting and moving works, the sort that leaves you wanting to be alone for a little while. Having read it days before seeing the film, it was perhaps too fresh in my mind for me to truly enjoy the adaptation. What struck me about McEwan's work in adapting his novel is that his script really struggled to translate the power of his book to screen. Whereas uh, there is barely a misplaced word in the novel... This film is far less able to find the visual language to show the character's awkwardness and pain. On top of this, the staid and cold world that the characters are trapped in begins to infect the film, and not in a favourable way. The film itself becomes a little distant. The story remains at its core a heart-wrenching one, and this is a very admirable film. It just doesn't seem to work particularly well as it's adapted from one medium to the other. I do wish I liked it more, but I've got nothing against it. Though it does have my small hill on which I shall die... Which is... The cricket shot shown in the film is not a stroke at all. Not even an incompetent batsman would play like that. And I say that as a proud village cricket tailender. It looked like he'd just been told to leave his bat to the side because they were on take 23. <laughs> and everyone had to go home. Still hadn't hit the stumps. <laughs> anyway, Jack, thank you. Thanks you very much. it in post. On Chesil Beach, out now. OK. What else is out? Cambodian Spring, which is a really extraordinary documentary from Chris Kelly, filmed over six years, which tells the story of grassroots activists on the Bionkak lakeside community. At the beginning of the film, we see these houses that are beside this lake that are flooding, and we see a huge pipe pumping sand and silt into the lake, which is clearly causing the lake to flood and causing the homes to flood. The land has been sold to developers who are essentially flooding the residents out of their home, and there appears to be a trail of corruption that leads all the way up to the very top of government. And what the film does is it then... Follows this the struggle against this development. On the one hand, there are two young mothers who unite against this common enemy, and they endure oppression and imprisonment. But also, the struggle takes starts to take its toll on them. And we see how relationships can be broken apart by this kind of thing. I was thinking while I was watching it of a Syrian love story, which is very much the same thing about the way in which political struggles can have personal. Uh, effects. There's also um, the Buddhist monk who becomes their ally and in the process finds his position in his pagoda completely endangered. His elders insist that he has no role in this struggle. Wonderfully, he is completely multimedia up. He films everything on these GoPros and on uh, camera phones. And one of the things that the film does, it has two messages. One of them is that nowadays you live in an environment which is possible to capture images so much that this stuff cannot be silenced. There is extraordinary frontline stuff in this film. The story I didn't know about, and there it is in front of you. You know, the images don't lie, and they're they're really shocking. The second thing is it does talk about how media attention can change situations and how it can change relationships and how struggles can tear people apart. Um, I thought it was really impressive. I thought it was a really, really uh, interesting piece of work. As I said, a story that I was, you know, embarrassed to say I didn't know more about, really well told. Uh, It's called Cambodian Spring. It's also worth pointing out that... um, it's the 50th anniversary of 2001. Blimey, that makes me feel old. Um, Christopher Nolan, I think, introduced an unrestored 70mm in Cannes. And the release says, for the first time since the original release, is 70mm print. Um, it's been struck from new printing elements made in the original camera negative. 
a true photochemical film recreation. There are no digital tracks, remastered effects or revisionist edits. People know that when Star Wars came back into cinemas, actually the Steven Spielberg's the same, constantly going back and fixing things and changing things. That's not happened with this. There is the 70 mil print that is unrestored. This is going to go back into cinemas and the film is going to be uh, shown in cinemas. If you get a chance, it is really well worth seeing it projected. We showed a 35 millimeter of it um, at the plaza in Truro and it was, I mean, it's breathtaking. I do remember seeing it for the first time. I saw it in the same cinema that I saw Silent Running. I think it was on Baker Street. It was, I'm pretty sure it was a film, a cinema that showed it in Cinerama, but um, it is something you need to see on the big screen because it does have this real sort of stately quality. There's a new trailer for it, incidentally, which is very, very sort of uh, understated. Then in the autumn, we're going to get a 4K HD high definition Blu ray. So, um, sorry, say that again. So it's 4K. It, 4K high definition. So just 4K. There's going to be a, 4, a 4K Blu ray coming in the autumn. What does the 4K mean, Roman? Well, it's just it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, a more highly defined image. So Is we, it 4,000 something or other? It's 4,000, yeah. Like we get 37 and it's 4,000. Super mega ultra high definition. Super mega ultra high definition, like literally, like not like the time that they broadcast it on the BBC. I think it was in which they letterboxed the space scenes, okay, and then in order because they didn't want the space scenes to be to just have big letterboxes on them, they put stars on the letterboxing. So in the scene when you see the spaceship, which has got a round front to it, but it's cut the top and bottom of the round are cut off by the top and bottom of the frame. There were stars. So it looked like the spaceship had completely changed shape and there were stars in space. Management, eh? Management. What do they know? Uh, so, um, intriguing. Movie of the week. What do you think? Well, it could be Chesel or it could be Jeune Femme, one of the two, I would think. It's unlikely to be Dimple. Jeune Femme. Jeune Femme, movie Film of the, the week. week. Hey, rock and roll. A mouse lived in a windmill in old Amsterdam. A windmill with a mouse in, and he wasn't grousing. <laughs> he sang every morning, how lucky I am. To be living in a windmill in old Amsterdam. I saw a mouse. Where? There on the stair. Where on the stair? Right there. A little mouse with clogs. On, you'd been on the sauce. <laughs> this is what we were re- referencing earlier. Oh, yeah. Ronnie Hilton, this was is. Ronnie Hilton, I didn't know that. Was it, did, but Danny Kaye didn't do it. I, I, I can't have a memory of it being no, older than... No, I think this is, this is the original, the version, yeah, yeah. from the original Greek. <laughs> in the in old Amsterdam from Ronnie Hilton. We'll do one more, do you want one more chorus? Yeah. Okay, here we go. I saw a mouse, where, there on the stair. Where on the stair, right there. Your band could cover this. Mouse with clogs on a skiffly version. <laughs> See? Have a banana. Anyway, that's that's enough. Shave and a haircut, ten cents. What? Shave and a haircut, ten cents. It's a you know. No, is that a thing? Yeah, it's you know the end of you know you know when songs end. Da 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 da. You got shave and a haircut. Is that right? Shave and a haircut, ten cents. A couple of small hills. Mm-hmm. You ready? I am ready. Why do people keep asking me if I'm ready? Do I look like I'm not ready? Yes. What? 
What is it that I'm doing that makes me look not ready? Andrew Griffiths, PhD, champion belly flopper at Christchurch Clifton in 2003. Dear Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, in preparation (laughs) for watching Avengers Infinity War, I decided to watch Thor Ragnarok. Whilst I think this is currently one of the best Marvel movies going, I've rewatched it several times. There is a moment when Bruce Banner and Thor are having a discussion, and it's revealed that Bruce Banner has seven, yes, seven PhDs. Yes. Having endured one PhD and understanding how academia works, either this shows that Bruce Banner isn't that bright and couldn't get accepted onto a postdoc, or they're honorary titles. Nothing wrong with those, Andrew. I appreciate that conveying Bruce's impact factor or successful grant proposals isn't exactly a sexy way to convey intelligence, but surely there's a better way than shouting out an arbitrary number of PhDs, as, let's be honest, no sane person would do, would be, would do more than one willingly. Despite this small hill moment, I still adore the film. OK. You've got an honorary doctorate, haven't you? Yes, that's why I made that little bit of editorial in there. I am a doctor of letters. So there. And that's always annoyed you somewhat. No, because I've got an honorary doctorate and a real doctorate. So well, you can't be doctor, doctor. I, I, that's like Thompson that's exactly what I am. Can't you see I'm burning, burning? You can't do that. You, do, you have to be one doctor or another. So. Okay. Uh, Mark Waning. I've just been through four years of your back catalogue. Really? Here's my small hill. Were we paying you? The film in question is Gareth Edwards' Godzilla. Oh, yes. A film I very much enjoyed, but found leaving a sour taste in my mouth. For context, I must explain I'm a vet, and so I've always had a love of things biological. Is he going to complain that the gorilla's too big? I've been a dinosaur. No, Godzilla. Sorry. I've been a dinosaur, a monster, nut for even longer. All through the film, we're told Godzilla is the ultimate predator. Yeah. Uh, and he's on the hunt. Yes. Yet after expending a sizable amount of energy, the calories involved in atomic breath are surely astronomical. Mm. Defeating his foes and collapsing from exhaustion, he just swans back off into the water without so much as a nibble. Survival of the fittest indeed. No wonder he's an endangered species. <laughs> Love the show, Steve. You've got into the voice again. You've, you've got this voice now that you, you slip into when reading mail. Yes. And it, I, I can't quite figure out what it... Because it's so subtle... But what, what is it that you... It's, it's just something about that you suddenly start doing this. It goes a little bit... It, it goes a little, little bit Ian McKellen, actually. Is that what it is? Yeah. Can you... Can you... Because Jason sent you a text. Can we... Well, I don't know. Let me just check. He sent me a text, but I don't know if I can... I don't know if it was for our own private amusement or whether it's for public amusement. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you tell the story and then we can cut it out. We can check it in a minute and then cut it out if it's no good. If well, it's not good, it's, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's very. It's a very funny story that Jason texted to you, but we might not hear from him for a while. Oh, hang on, here he's just come in. He's just come in. What does he say? Bro- uh, broadcast with pleasure with birdsong. There we go. Okay, okay. fine. Yeah, so birdsong the the fruitcake. Well, I'm. It, I won't need birdsong because I just, just edit on edit the hoof because that's the kind of professional you are. This is this is because of uh, uh, Ian McKellen. <laughs> I've got to do News 24, and I'm definitely going to say that that book was written by Ian McKellen. So Jason Isaac sent in, he was obviously listening, and he heard uh, our interview with Serene. And incidentally, Jason does the most brilliant impression of Ian McKellen. In 1995, says Jason. This is when from I'm, Jason. Yes, when I was wondering whether to be a small part in Dragonheart or something very classy The National had offered, Sir Ian, pre-Richard III making him a household name, asked if I minded him giving me some advice. No, I'd love it, please says Jason. Of course. I've done every lead at the RSC and most of the Russians and the Scandinavians at the National, says Serene, <laughs> who's not a sir at the time. Yes, I know, I've seen them, says Jason. And I'm pretty well known in the theatre world. Yes, I say. 
That's Jason speaking. And I can't afford to service my flipping mini. If I had my time again, I'd take every butler, every cape-swirling bad guy, every monocled, paper-thin aristocrat I could get my grubby hands on. I took it. Got to Slovakia, told the director that I had my doubts, but that Ian McKellen told me he would have done it. Really, he said, is he available? That is a genius story. Very good. It would have been even better if we had uh, Jason to actually tell the story. I know, because he would have done the Ian McKellen voice as well. He would have done. So, uh, DVD of the week coming up in just a moment. Mm -hmm. Um, An interesting email from Susie. says, hello, Mark, Simon, Ellis and John. This is a reference to Ellis James and John Robbins who are on Radio X. Yes. This is a joint email to two of my favourite podcast teams ever, maybe increasing the chance of it getting read out. It's Mental Health Awareness Week, and I know from being a long-term listener and podcast devotee that you guys have lots of listeners who write in and say how much your shows have helped them through the trickier bits of life. And can I just say, we are always really, really uh, grateful for those emails. Thank you very much. Whether it's reassuring your listeners uh, that you too have experienced the darkness or telling us that everything will be all right in the end, it's clear that I'm by no means the only person who turns to the old pod as a means of coping. You help me get ready for work in the morning when that feels like the most impossible thing ever. And you help me get to sleep when worries could easily fill my mind, though I hate to miss any of your chat, so I have to try and work out at which point I nodded off. Usually when Mark starts going into some long French film that he can't pronounce the title of. Your shows aren't about the darkness, but the silly banter combined with the gentle reminder every now and then that we're not alone in struggling and that life is rich in its peaks and in its troughs is more help than you can ever imagine. As it's Mental Health Awareness Week and it's podcast awards season, who to vote for in this one is a real pickle for me. (laughs) I wanted to write a big fat thank you and celebrate what I think is the unsung hero of mental health coping mechanisms, and that is the podcast. Um, Susie, thank you very much. Lovely, lovely email. email. Thank you. And if we see Ellis James and John Robbins at the British Podcast Awards, we will. I mean, presumably they've read it out as well. They'll have read it out. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. And we'll meet up and we'll raise a glass to you. So, uh, if we haven't got any any other business, we can do our DVD of the week. I don't think Is there there's any other. Else you wanted to mention. I'll tell you how, how much I thought it was brilliant that Suri absolutely. And now we on move on. Then it's our what was happening with all the DVD of the week. Yeah. Well, now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Could this be the most Oscar-packed for a while? Well, let's see. Sebastian Lelio's Chilean drama Fantastic Woman won Best Foreign Language Film. Coco won Best Animated Feature and Best Song. Frances McDormand and Sam Rockwell won Best Actress in a Leading Role and Best Supporting Actor, respectively, for three billboards. The Matrix gets a 4K reissue, just talked about that, and took home Best Film Editing, Best Sound, Best Effects and Sound Effects Editing, and The Commuter, for which Liam Neeson took home the actor in a leading role in an action film not quite as good as Taken, the A-Team, <laughs> Unknown, The Grey, Taken 2, Non-Stop, Run All Night, or even Taken 3. <laughs> so what will you pick and what's Mark's choice? Alex Brown says, you can't go wrong on any week when there's an option to see Liam Neeson punching people in the face. <laughs> Sebastian Morden, I think it ought to be The Matrix. It's been parodied, it's been imitated, and opinions on the sequels and the extended universe of it might be divided, but The Matrix is iconic. It stands... Out as instantly recognisable and unique, it's still great. It captured imaginations when it was first released, and it was part of the zeitgeist at the time. 
It still echoes through media now. After all these years, the film still captivates and is worth a rewatch. A lot of these films are great films that deserve their praise, but The Matrix is a milestone that has endured. It's strange that it's become popular to dismiss it or joke about it these days, but that especially should make it a perfect candidate for DVD of the week. What is your choice, Mark? Well, the new DVD of the week is A Fantastic Woman, which I, I thought was absolutely brilliant. I, I, I love that story. It's a story about... Um, uh, a transgender woman who finds herself shut out of her life after her partner dies and suddenly the family turn on her. It has a brilliant sense performance by Daniela Vega. It's, I think it was wonderfully directed, really moving and funny sometimes, but also you know tragic and, and very empowering, and I, I loved that film. Um, for the uh, old reissue, it is The Matrix. I remember being at Radio 1 when The Matrix came out and... Maria Williams, who was um, doing the, the film show at that point, was so taken with The Matrix that she got this screensaver of, you know, the digital things falling Green down numbers like rain. You remember, yeah, you remember that? And this was at the point when having a screensaver like that was like the coolest thing in the world. And I remember doing the, the radio show and looking at her screensaver and thinking, wow, the, the, it's, we're, we're living in the future. Look, she's got a Matrix screensaver. I love The Matrix. I absolutely love The Matrix. Oh, I see. I thought there was uh, some uh, some kind of qualification coming in there. No, no. What? 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 what, what? It's true though. From from what uh, Sebastian Morden says, when it, when we got to Matrix two and three, it's sort of yeah, yeah. Everything was not. I don't care good. about the sequels. I don't care about the sequels. The Matrix. Weirdly enough, I know that the that the Wachowskis always said that it was intended as a trilogy, but I, you know, the first one is is the film, the chase sequence in the second one that made Anne V. Coates clap that she didn't remember but she thought was very funny that I remembered being in a screening room with her when that happened which I thought was a really polite thing to say because she didn't say he's lying it didn't happen she said apparently oh I don't remember that but that's very funny and Keanu was was the coolest man on the planet Nani Nunu was at his height and I did a an interview on stage interview with him and Charlize Theron and Thron I'm really sorry Charlize Thron and the director of Devil's Advocate, um, and the, he had just been making The Matrix, and we were in, a, in a, a foyer. This is like a showbiz anecdote, right? Another one. And he was explaining to Charlie's Thron what skills he had learned to make the film, and he started doing kung fu in the, in the foyer, you know, while we were waiting for the lift to come down. And he was doing a thing about standing on one foot and lifting one leg up in the air while his head went down below the, you know, the point of balance on his thing. And I thought, wow, you are a real movie star because you are. Like- and he is again. And after his Quantum Baby, Quantum Baby performance, yeah. we love him all over again. Yeah, I know, I know. It was great. I was honestly, that was such a great memory. And then I said, you know, you know, here's the interesting thing. Another one. I said to Charlie's Thron, "How do you pronounce your name?" And I've never got it right. Okay, that's what I'm here for. It's just to remind you how to pronounce okay. words. Uh, thank you, Mark. It's been so much pleasure. It's been so much... That sounded like it was translated by Google Translate. It was. It's been so much pleasure. Later, we'll be having enjoyably times. But <laughs> You've been speaking on the wrong phone lines. Pardon? Nothing.